This is Doug. This is Jacob. And welcome to Best Sports Podcast, episode 42. 42. Cheers. That's the Kalila talking. Um, it's been a while since we've had an evening one. Well, it's been a while since we've had one. Full stop. <laughs> I think our last one was like um, Film Festival 2018 roundup. Yeah, I thought we eh, maybe we did one earlier this year. Long-term listeners will know better than I would. <laughs> but uh, it's been a pretty eventful year. Yeah. Um, uh, those who follow me through other means know that I've been was gone for the first half of it. And, yeah, uh, multitude of film festivals around the world. Yeah, um, the Cannes Film Festival. Um, What's is, the Italian one? It was all uh, the oh, the, there's a couple. So. Um, so I'll, I'll go do a quick tour mm. through them because there were some really cool um, things. I actually the first cool experience film experience was in Rome, um, where there was a festival, not a festival going on, but the um, film uh, archive that they had there oh, yeah. was doing its last screenings um, before it shut down, and it was doing a retrospective series of police films from the seventies. <laughs> and so Sarah and I went to see Polizietta Sprint. And which I had never heard of, mm. and of course was in Italian with no subtitles. But a, she speaks a little Italian, and b, it's a car chase movie. Oh, like yeah, you know, they yeah. have car chases down the Spanish Steps and all yeah. this. It's the kind of movie where there's a heist, and they don't bother to show the heist because yeah. <laughs> they're too busy like having another car chase. So, um, so from there we went to Paris, and that was amazing because. Um, there was a festival called Tous les Mémoires du Monde, which was at the Cinémathèque Française the weekend we got there, yeah. and and other venues around. And so that was a hundred restored or otherwise uh, retrospective films over four days. And each year they have a few guests of honor. So this year um, Nicholas Winding Refn, oh wow, was one of the guests of honor. And so there was a combination of a. Ref in retrospective, yeah. and we went to see Drive. Uh, he also presented a series of retro screenings of films that he liked, so I got to see Fat City by John Huston, okay. which is a 1972 boxing film with um, uh, young Jeff Bridges and uh, oh. Stacey Keach, yeah. and it's great, it's terrific, and um, it just um, it has a really unappealing title, but it's yeah, a I've not, really, I've not heard of it. really cool film. And then he also screened, did a few screenings of some of the films that are on his By NWR site. He did an overnight marathon because oh, yeah. that was part of the reason he was a guest of honor is like for his work in restoring these films. Oh, cool. um, and he also presented a screening of El Topo with Alejandro Jodorowsky, which I went to, um, despite the fact it nice. was in Spanish with French subtitles. <laughs> um, now, I've seen El Topo before yeah. with you at a yeah. midnight marathon yeah. and... It didn't make a damn bit of sense. And so part of me wasn't worried, but I actually went to the Wikipedia uh, page and read the plot before I went in. And that was way more helpful than actually speaking the language. <laughs> so I could follow the film. But it was quite funny because Refn's a weird cat. He yeah. always shows up in a suit and tie and kind of says somewhat pretentious things and, and gave yeah. off a really awkward vibe. And he told this long rambling story before um, Drive about meeting Ryan Gosling and feeling, oh, you know, we're the same. And it was really self-aggrandizing. And then he talks about Joe Dorowski and he's like, oh, you know, we're the same. And it's like, <laughs> he's like a lot but, of I mean, nobody can confuse Ryan Gosling and Alejandro Jodorowsky. <laughs> no. um, but um, Joe Dorowski start, just started ripping into him because, he's like, you know, he was there in like an old sweater and yeah. like jeans. And he's like, you know, you're bourgeoisie and I'm proletarian. You know, there's nothing. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. And then Paris just has the most amazing collection of repertory mm. film houses. So I saw like Nicholas Ray's Wind Across the Everglades oh, on wow. a 35 millimeter print and all these other things. There was a documentary festival at the... Uh, Sandra Pompidou and Kevin Jerome Emerson, who's done a few films like Island of St. Matthews and um, 
I'm blanking, but he there was a retrospective of his films on movie re- recently, oh, like yeah. last year, and um, and so I saw him do a workshop, and oh, that wow. was really interesting. Uh, and then uh, and also there was like this once a month avant garde screening night, so I went to this um, screening that was all like avant garde films based around circles. And so, like you know, that use them in different ways, and that and there's one that was by a guy Aldo Tambellini that was just black and white, but just really like stroboscopic and intense. There was one with two projectors where they um, lined up the projectors against each other, and oh, wow. and so yeah, I mean Paris, um, in a lot of ways, was a tricky place to be in because the yellow vest stuff was going on, and yeah. so it was really intense. But um, and Parisians are unhappy people, and we'd had a really great time and. Rome, and then we got to Paris, and it was all a bit weird. And also, Christchurch happened right when we got there, and mm-hmm. so the whole vibe was a bit weird. But also, there was a film festival in Brussels, so we ran away to Brussels for a weekend and saw Peter Strickland's In Fabric oh. with Peter Strickland there. Which oh, we'll well, ta- we'll talk more about Peter Strickland on yeah. this podcast. But um, that he was a lovely guy, and that was a really great experience. And taking a friend from film school along who had never seen any. Um, Peter Strickland films but it was a real audio buff and so oh. you, somebody yeah, who yeah, really yeah, appreciates yeah. audio going into a Peter yeah. Strickland film and uh, and also was a Stereo Lab fan and he didn't know Tim Gain had done the uh, oh, yeah, yeah. soundtrack uh, so then we went to Luca and Sarah's like we're well over film festivals at this point and we were staying in a village actually called Bani de Luca um, which was 45 minutes out has about 400 people in it no movie theaters and most movie theaters in Italy uh only show dubbed versions. Every once in a while, they'll have a version originale oh, yeah. screening. But she was like, you know, we should really see the Avengers movie before it gets spoiled for us. I'm like, okay. So I started Googling, you know, Luca movie theaters. And the Luca Film Festival is on. <laughs> and the Luca Film Festival has as its guests of honor Rutger Hauer wow. and Joe Dante and Mick Garris, along with um, Philip Groening, the German guy yeah, who yeah. did Integrate Silence, yeah. and um, yeah, the, one of the Taviani brothers, and um, one or two others. But, you know, guests who speak English, who are doing what are called master classes. Um, Rutgers, bless his soul. Uh, I described him to people afterwards as a friendlier, uh, more well-intentioned Donald Trump. Oh, um, uh, you know, he, his, his values are in the right place. His heart's in the right place. His storytelling is not focused. Yeah, yeah. And, and he just said, oh, I just, you know, you know, people would ask him questions. I just do what I do. And, you know, yeah. and eventually he got to like some prompts for like specific films and he'd break out his pre-prepared anecdotes about yeah. those. And that was okay. But um, the Dante Garris one was amazing, especially because mm-hmm. Mick Garris, um, is not a filmmaker I knew much about. And looking him up, the only thing I could think that I'd seen was um, Sleepwalkers, which was a Stephen King mm-hmm. an- um, adaptation, adaptation yeah. from the early 90s. And I mm-hmm. remember a bunch of friends at university I going and laughing through the whole thing, like when the mom stabs somebody in the back with a corn cob and says, <laughs> no vegetables, no dessert. Um, but he's one of those like guys that's... Um, He's been everywhere, and he was like Amblin during the Amazing Stories oh, in that yeah, post era, and so yeah. he was directed some of that and was really involved with all of that. And he's kind of con- he organized the whole Masters of Horror thing, and so oh, wow. um, Joe Dante and Takashi Miike and all the people who contributed to that. Yeah. And now he does a podcast, and actually, after they did their initial, somewhat averagely curated. Um, Q&A with the festival. He's like, stick around and I'm going to interview um, Joe Dante for my podcast. So we got a double dose and that oh, was much more yeah. in-depth into Dante as well. Um, 
most of the films, again, were in Italian, but I did see one film that's great that um, would make my top ten of this year if it comes out anywhere um, by a British guy named Mark Jenkin called Bait, hmm. which I strongly urge people to track down whenever they can. Unfortunately, all the festivals seem to have passed on it here. Yeah. But he, um, he shoots... On 16 millimeter, black and white, oh, yeah. uh, and then processes the film himself with like coffee grounds and other chemicals, oh. and he sh- and he shoots on a hand crank camera that can only shoot, I think like 30 second rolls at a time or something, and so there's sort of a feel of it that kind of reminds you of some of Guy Madden's stuff, yeah. um, but he's telling kind of like a social realist story, but with okay. like this kind of crazy feel to it and mm. all the kind of limitations that yeah. that. Has and he also does. He dubs everything entirely post sync. Uh-huh. Um, so it's uh, yeah. It takes what could be like kind of a political k- kitchen sink melodrama about this fisherman in this fishing village where like n- uh, the old fishing houses have now gone to people who are renting them out for Airbnbs, yeah, yeah. and the old fishing boat is now used for like bachelor parties because that's yeah. all they. And um, you know this kind of pivoting era of social change in. Yeah. And there's, it creates this whole dislocating aesthetic about it that really was just really yeah, special. And, yeah, really exciting. And then we went to Cannes, but, you know, everybody knows about Cannes. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you've missed one key um, thing there is, did you actually get to see the Avengers film? <laughs> mm. We did, actually. And that was... Um, uh, we went to Florence and we found a uh, version of Originale screening. And so we, we spent two, um, because we had a month in this place where we had free accommodation, which is this, um, I mean, one of the amazing luxuries that yeah. we could do this trip is is through the kindness of friends. And that was mm-hmm. one of the biggest kindnesses. So we felt like, okay, well, we can spend a night in Florence, yeah. you know, a B&B and like, just go there, um, wander around, you know, mm-hmm. Florence because it's. Florence, you know, um, and spend four hours seeing an Avengers film. And it was because um, it got to a certain point and suddenly the music stopped, but the picture stayed still and the lights in the house came up and they're just like, we're having an intermission now for 20 minutes. Someone just press pause on the DCP. So they, and it was a theater that sold beer and stuff. So I assume that was kind of their uh, raison d'etre for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interestingly, that happened again in Malta. The only movie, film we saw in Malta was uh, John Wick Three, oh, yeah. um, which is a much more reasonable length of a film. You can, you know, yeah. fair enough for putting an intermission in Bloody Avengers Endgame. Yeah. But John Wick Three is like 120 minutes. Yeah. And, um, halfway through, they're like, "Let's." Uh, it, it actually just they faded the film down and they brought up a 10 minutes to go buy something. Yeah. You know, and then had an advertising reel, and it was just like. What the hell? That's like dropping into the yeah. 80s. <laughs> yeah, it was so weird. Um, anyway, Can I could go on a long time about Can, so I might just um, yeah, we'll skim over it for now. And I think yeah. when we talk about some of the film festival films, but that was you know, if it's if it turns out to be a once in a lifetime experience, that's, that's a, a okay cine- because it was um, incredible. A yeah. rich uh, adventure, really. Yeah, and then and then we did also uh, the Il Cinema Ritrovato in. Bologna, which is a retrospective film festival that goes for 
eight or nine days, and there was a Francis Ford Coppola masterclass mm-hmm. there. I saw films from before 1900, oh. uh, films that with um, piano accompaniment, um, a documentary on Dario Argento that was completed this this February and, and all points in between. Yeah. Um, oh. I saw four films by this American film noir director named Felix Feist, who I'd never heard of before. And just, um, he did like the devil thumbs a ride and, uh, tomorrow is another day. And, oh, there was a really good one that I forgot on the name of. Um, but all these discoveries mm. of, and, you know, and some of which weren't entirely pleasant, like the um, president of the Academy brought over, like the Academy of Motion Picture, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Arts and Science, do, brings over a bunch of 35 mil prints from the Academy vault every yeah. year. And he brought over um, Gigi, and he, uh, which I'd never seen, yeah. um, the musical. And uh, he's like, you know... There's a song, Thank Heaven for Little Girls, and some people might struggle with that in this era, but, it, you know, that's just what it was. You have to go with it. And so it's like, he didn't mention, A, that that's the opening song of the film, and B, also, that's the theme and moral of the film. Yeah. You know? It's just like, ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but then also, like, really esoteric African uh, strands of film. Uh, they had a whole strand of Korean films, and I saw The Housemaid for the first uh-huh. time, yeah. uh, which Bong Joon Ho mentioned as a um, uh, reference for Parasite. Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty film centric trip. And there was also the weird ass film museum in Genoa, which had like everything from a Steenbeck to like glass plates to like um, statue, like statues that they bought off the internet for Saw and horror movies and stuff. It was just this really like every, you know, everything that has to do with film. Yeah. Here's a poster of Return of the King because why not? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So what have you been up to the last eight months? <laughs> yeah. uh, not a whole heap. I mean, I got a good run at festival this year, which was yeah. great. Um, other than that, uh, I've been. A few things in cinema, not a lot, not yeah. as much as I'd, I'd hoped, um, and then just a, a bunch at home. What's your um, ratio of film to TV viewing at the moment? Um, it's probably I, I went through a period of watching a whole heap of TV right. um, on Netflix and um, with with Melissa, and, and yeah. then um, and then some catching catching up some things that I was just keen on seeing myself. Mm. Um, Oh, the one that Antonio Campos did the first couple of with Bill. Oh, the sinner. Yeah, sinner. Oh, that that started good, and then got yeah, re- yeah. Got it, the- actually, we wound up reading the um, uh, Wikipedia summary to yeah. the uh, after about episode six. We're like, this is just getting so dumb. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so there's a bunch of things that I kind of caught up with, mm. um, but I, I do kind of catch up with a number of films, but you know, mixed quality. And sometimes mm. I'm just feeling too tired, and then you yeah. just watch something crappy that's not hard work, and may or may not get through it <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i guess the girls are staying up later these days so uh, harder yeah. to get as much oh no it's just been a really hard year work-wise right, i've okay. sort of been working between sort of two and three roles at work um because of stuff that had gone down and i hadn't yeah. had a boss and so i've just got a boss so things are sort of slowing down a little bit but i had a sort of six month period where things were just nuts and i was right uh yeah running low on everything <laughs> yeah oh Energy, good cheer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, having said, said that, I did see that you managed to get out to um, the Hollywood Avondale for uh, oh, at yes. least one film. Yeah, yeah I got to um, <laughs> Man, I go away for six months and suddenly it's like the Academy's like, we're just going to do retro film screenings all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the Hollywood's like, I guess we are too. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, wait, oh, I... 
I've lived here for 14 years and none of this is happening. And yeah. now it's like I'm missing Blue Velvet in 35. And, yeah, because well, I, I thought, you know, the Hollywood was, was doing, running hard on, on a lot of live music gigs. And then suddenly yeah. they were doing a whole bunch of retro films. I'm like, whoa, hey. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. And now we've got the, we've really got the nice um, calendar on our fridge. Yeah. The calendars are really nice for it. They're beautiful. Actually. Yeah. It reminds me of um, one of the Melbourne ones that Nights used to see me. Oh, the Aster. Yeah. 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 Apparently, like um, back in the mid 90s, Sarah compares it to the um, the Capitol used oh, to do similar yeah, yeah, ones yeah. as well. And there was a the theater in um portland called cinema 21 that yeah. did a similar kind of uh so i've got one up at work thing. yeah just look really nice and, and the list of films is very nice <laughs> yeah um i think we're um gonna make it to flash dance on thursday oh. <laughs> and uh, i'm still weighing up whether to see rocky horror for the first time oh, you've not I've, seen it? i've never seen it and it's in 35 mil and it's with richard o'brien yeah and i know that i'm not going to be able to hear 40 percent of the film because people will be yelling or yeah, doing whatever yeah, it is yeah. they do and i know there were all these stories when i was in university of like oh if you go and you're a virgin they'll like torment you or whatever mm. um and i mean even though i'm not that kind of virgin anymore i'm still <laughs> i'm still a virgin when it comes to seeing the film and yeah, so yeah. Um, i'm a bit nervous as to uh, if I, yeah I, I don't know what yeah, but I imagine it's probably much more genteel here than it was at Houston. Yeah, 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 I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, so, cool. film festival. Yeah. So this was um, this was another amazing thing that came you, out you of being at Cannes. Yeah. yeah. So, but one of the things that was amazing, a because I went to Cannes, I got to see a bunch of the films before festival. Oh yeah. But also, right. um, we um, both Sarah and I. Uh, got the opportunity to write for the film festival program this year. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, because of the nature of... Yeah, like uh, Yeah, uh, yeah, all three of us. So, yeah. Um, because of the nature of the travel, I, I wasn't... Yeah, the place we were staying in Tuscany didn't have internet. And oh, right, yeah. Stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, honestly, if it's watching a screener of a DACA or going have, having another 11 euro um, workman's lunch with, like pasta and meat and wine and whatever you know we'll probably go to lunch <laughs> um but um but yeah so that was that was a relief scheduling wise because there's a lot that i would have liked to see that i couldn't have um if it wasn't for that but i was really excited with this year's program in part mm. because of the huge retro yeah content um yeah Vata retro yeah and uh, unlike yourself i'm i was uh I knew Vada was a significant mm. name, and I just hadn't seen anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, the only one I'd seen prior to that was um, Faces Places. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, that was the other thing that happened in Paris, is that we went to the Agnes Varda Memorial at yeah. the Cinematheque Francais, which mm. I told on another podcast, and talk, mm. probably already that. I know that mm. Karis has heard the story, but if not, just pigeonhole me the next time you see me. <laughs> um, but that was a really special experience. So, yeah, coming back to... Um, Having them throw that together yeah. so quickly uh, and being able to see those films, um, I I went to see Jaco de Nantes oh, and yeah. um, uh, well Varda by Agnes and yeah. I, I went to um, um, oh you, uh, the Vada ones I yeah. went to Daguerreotypes yeah uh, or Daguerreotypes or yeah you pronounce it and. Um, and did you go to Vagabond? Yes, Vagabond, which uh, was yeah, which I, so good. I really wish I'd gone to see Vagabond. And I was a, a, uh, I was a fan again. of Sandrine Bonnier yeah. um, from uh, her early work with um, Pilar. Yeah, and, and yeah, the, Vagabond was so good. Yeah, it's um, really an exceptional film, and, and I think and a real blend of kind of stars. You got that kind of real documentary sort of feel to yeah. the way that she makes it, and and uh, but then the tracking shots, people, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and. 
Um, yeah, and I think also, like, I think some people who find Varda a bit too whimsical at points, that's mm. probably the one that they could yeah. go to for something a bit... <laughs> yeah, yeah. A but, bit grittier. But, but the Garantypes is so fun. Oh, oh. That, I mean, that's my... Yeah. That's, when I saw the picture and the, and the thing of just, like, a couple of older people in an old setting standing yeah. in front of a meat store. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, this is totally my thing. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you like old people in meat stores, this is your film. <laughs> it it um, made me think of um, Vernon, Florida. From, oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, a, there's a little bit of that, although I hopefully a more well, um, I mean, from sympathetic the, yeah. viewpoint. Oh, yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. yeah. And um, the story around it is just fa- you know, fantastic. Yeah, I, I went and visited the Rue de Guerre and, oh, um, yeah, yeah. A, a couple days afterwards and it had apparently like uh, uh, Agnes Varda's place on the Rue de Guerre had become a huge shrine and then the night oh, before yeah, it rained yeah. um, and so there wasn't much there but a few people had left potatoes oh, um, yeah, we yeah. went to a graveyard afterwards and there were potatoes all oh, over yeah, it along yeah. with all the wreaths from all the distributors yeah. but yeah I mean the um, the uh, street has uh, gentrified modernized yeah. whatever yeah. in the intervening years and it's yeah. somewhat different but it still um, has some of the flavor that you see yeah, because that, that was um, 70s, mid-80s? Maybe mid Yeah, it was, it, was when she, it was when she had a ki- kid, and it was shortly after that, because she could only walk a few yeah, blocks. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. She just had that, and she had the camera with the huge lead on it. that she just Yeah, yeah, there. just run the sound yeah. ca- cable back to her apartment. 1976. Oh, 76. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, so. it had that real feel of yeah. everything was um, small, specialized little stores, mm. and that was their family job you know that's what they did and people just came in and yeah it was, it was a beautiful little piece of observation and and but but the way that she constructs it was so good like um with yeah. the 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 magician who was coming to town and then there were so many kind of callbacks to different things that people had had in their in their daily lives that were then mm. kind of shown right in, the, in the magician's yeah. act yeah yeah i did um i could have done with a little less magician if truth be told yeah. I, that's it's one of my like I don't need a lot of... Uh, it's like clowns. A little yeah, magician yeah, yeah. goes a long way for me. <laughs> well, I just like but, the way uh, that she tied it into the rest of the film. Yeah, oh no, structurally yeah. and like writing-wise and taking something that's yeah. a very... I'm gonna, you know, you know, I mean, you can imagine how many bad films could yeah. be made by like, I'm just going to interview the people on my street and I'll make a film. And, yeah. and it's so consistently watchable and yeah. so human and powerful. Yeah. Um, was that in your... So we kind of... Because we just figured, rather than having completely rambling conversations, we'll, we do we'll top five. a bit more yeah. structure. So, yeah, so. actually, Vagabond um, made it, it was my number four um, mm. for festival because yeah, it was just really riveting, and that whole yeah. sense of like treating it like a documentary. Mm. So, um, mm. spoiler alerts for people who haven't seen this film from the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, it sets up pretty quickly. It's about a, yeah. about a drifter girl who um, who, who dies. From um, from exposure, yeah, um, and then it just. Um, shoots. I think that is revealed in the opening shot. It to is, be fair. <laughs> and and it, and it just shoots back through the previous kind of few weeks. I think yeah. um, of people telling stories about this person they've met, um, which reveal a lot about the people more though, more so than about the girl. Yeah, um, and it's, yeah, it's just a fascinating kind of look at people's values and why they. Um, why they do things that, and and the kind of hopes and dreams that people have and how they project onto other people and yeah yeah but it, yeah that, that sense of it's like a told as if it's a documentary and people are being are talking uh, and it's got that real sense of a very a, a sense of verite to it yeah. um, but then like Sandra Bonnier's um, performance is fantastic yeah yeah um, Jaco Denant which is the highlight of the ones that I saw during festival itself is almost the opposite of it because it's such yeah. a um, collage effect of the film because it's got um, 
documentary footage. It's got drama recreation. Oh, yeah. It's got just it's got all this goofy stuff going on in it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's this really heartfelt story about um, Jacques Demy and oh, his. Oh yeah, that's yeah, about yeah. Jacques Demy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean. Th- the last few have all been about shock to me, kind yeah, of. Yeah. But um, and and to be honest, I was a little disappointed by Varda by Agnes because it yeah. felt a bit like a um, TED Talk, uh, yeah, and, Agnes and, and style. And Beaches of Agnes did it better. Yeah, and and I I enjoyed that because I hadn't seen Beaches, by mm. his, and and I wasn't as au okay fait with her stuff. Yeah, and what I really liked most about that was actually looking at her art, um, right? Yeah, and the way that she kind of used cinema, like making that house out of old film, film, um, yeah, yeah, um, which is fantastic. So that kind of stuff was really moving and, and interesting to me but I can but you're right it really did look like a sitting there yeah here's my thing next slide yeah you know, I mean it's slightly clever and cutting between yeah. some of them and yeah. and a few like going outside with Sandrine Bonaire yeah, to talk yeah. about Vagabond and yeah. doing a tracking shot there yeah I mean it's a little harsh to call it a TED, TED talk, talk yeah but it's also a little grandiose to call it a film I feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know it's like it's somewhere in the middle I think yeah. um I didn't actually put these in numbers, um, but um, one of my five highlights was definitely "Come to Daddy." Um, yeah, and well, that's um, cool. Yeah, well, the, I mean, big ups to Ant. Yeah, and I, um, I was so nervous because you know I just. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't go to the opening at the Civic because I was seeing something else at the time, and. Um, you know, it's one of those when any time anyone you know makes a film, uh, yes, please. Um, the first thing you say to yourself is, "Yeah, please, God, let it not suck." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I saw the night before I saw the film, I saw um, a couple friends in the street, and um, <laughs> one of them said, "Yeah, we went out drinking afterwards, and we." And then we, at one point we raised our glasses and like, here's to Ant for not fucking it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I, I, look, I think there's a couple first-time film things in it. There's an unfortunate um, parallel to another very popular genre film um, that came out this year that's Korean. I won't say any more than oh, that. Right. But there's kind Which of a... Which I haven't pl- still... Yeah, I'm mute to see. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a moment where you'll be like, huh. And it is yeah. just like two, yeah. you know, it's deep impact and Armageddon yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of thing yeah. in a way. It's it's not that similar, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, just the specificity of Toby Harvard's writing and yeah. um, the banging uh, central performances yeah. from um, from Elijah like, Wood. Yeah, you know, well, not just Elijah Wood, yeah. but um, Stephen McCaddy, Steve McCaddy yeah. and Martin Donovan yeah. and Michael Smiley. Those yeah, are yeah. all like yeah. you know, and just um, and I was I didn't. Um, Take Sarah, but in part because I didn't know, just like I don't know how transgressive yeah. this is going to be given Ant's reputation. And I think it hit a really it hit a sweet spot. Yeah, you know, did. I think it felt like a I, film that had, you could take enough people. Kind of, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Kind of say this is an Ant film. Yeah, um, but it, but it also felt like you didn't come yeah. away from it feeling too dirty. Um, <laughs> or, or yeah, not, yeah. T- not you didn't it, you didn't feel like yeah um, abused. By no, it, you didn't you feel know. like it was just pushing the bounds for. Just for the sake of pushing the back, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and um, that was a fantastic film, and I'm like you, I mean, we saw it at the spiritual home, really. yeah, yeah, at Hollywood, the Hollywood, Hollywood, yeah, which is fantastic. Um, and and it was a really embarrassing question, <laughs> and it was that thing where we we met with Ant afterwards, and, and <laughs> yeah, and with Matt, yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, and it was uh, it was it was really good to come out of that just feeling buzzed and like you just had a really good time, yeah, um, and to be able to say that honestly to Ant, that was such a good, such yeah, a good time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Um, I'd seen a couple of the um, incredibly strange films before I got there and oh, yeah, um, yeah. some of the other ones. I mean, there were some that I liked, but that weren't the same kind of 
ride, like yeah. the Amazing Jonathan documentary, which was oh, really yeah. interesting, but a bit more of a mind fuck. Um, yeah, yeah. So to have one that was just kind of a right down the middle adrenaline rush yeah. of a film was like, yeah. Because I saw Violent Voyager, and that was, again, that Ooh, was like, I was a bit nervous about that. That was a kind of bizarre, weird, mm. grotty. I, I, I actually ended up really enjoying it, but it wasn't yeah. quite what I hoped it might be. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was still pretty good. Um, but yeah, Come to Daddy was just such a great experience. Yeah. So much fun. But it didn't make your top five. Uh, no, not quite. Not so what's, quite. what's number five that pipped it to the post? Um, number five for me was um, one that a whole lot of people really didn't like that much, which is uh, Long Day's Journey and Tonight. By game. Oh yeah, I'm one of them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, okay, well, let, let's hear the case for the prosecution. <laughs> Um, or the case for the defense, I'm not sure which. It looked really <laughs> nice, no. Um, <laughs> okay, yep, it yep. did look really nice. Uh, I think I just, I like the sense of flow to the film. I like the way that it kind of, the, the, the way that it kind of physically moved around locations mm-hmm. and that sense of it moving on the screen as well. Um, Are you talking about in the first? So for those who haven't seen it, um, the big gimmick of both Bygone's films, actually, because his first film is Kylie Blues, yeah. and the second one is Long Day's Journey Into Night, yeah. and the gimmick of both of them is the second half of the film is an, is an hour-long tracking three, shot. Yeah. And um, the second, and, and Long Day's one, Journey Into Night, in 3D. Yeah. Yeah, which I was confused when I saw the film, because I thought it was a 3D film, and it's actually only the track yeah. tracking shots of the 3D, and there's like a thing on screen that says, put your 3D glasses on now. Yeah. It's just like... Okay. Well, and and I think and the thing is, is from that point, it's supposed to be him in a dream sequence, mm. um, and essentially, uh, it's it's a so it's this kind of weird hyper hyper real three um, D sequence where you're moving around. Uh, so it's, I think in a great interview I read with him, he was talking about trying to that, that sense of dream and, and memory yeah. feeling more real than real sometimes particularly when you're in the midst of it and, it, and like when you wake up from something like that and you're like oh, you can you'd swear yeah. it happened um and you're left with that weird sense of how can this not have happened yeah. um and so he reconstructs multiple parts of the actual film narrative within that dream sequence and re yeah yeah um, reorders them resequences them yeah. and kind of and has another look at what they might mean yeah um because it's a bit it's a bit oblique um, yeah. in terms of narrative, um, which doesn't bother me. Um, right. But that real sense of um, running away from a past and then kind of being confronted with it again and how how you deal with those things um, and then that splintering out into the stream sequence, I, I really enjoyed that structurally. Right. Um, and I, and it, that just was a quite a, an interesting thing to me. And I, th- I thought it was yeah. done pretty well and it looked amazing. I mean, yeah. the 3D is... It was fine. Yeah. Um, so I will say I will agree it looked amazing, and I felt like actually the first half almost felt like a compendium of different ways to make yeah. shots look amazing. It wasn't yeah. just like you see some amazing looking film, but they're yeah. doing the same thing every time. Yeah. And this one, it's like this one we're going to focus on having off camera <laughs> light that moves in a yeah. certain way. This one Color, we're going to focus. Yeah. Co- water. All the, water. All yeah. those. All those things. Specific camera movements. Um, yeah, following was, a vehicle that goes around behind some other obstructed thing. Oh and yeah, kind of yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So look, yeah. as a demo reel, it was incredible. <laughs> um, <Gosh. laughs> I, I I was tired when I saw it, and I also sat next to somebody who was in a wheelchair, and over the course of the first half hour, had like three different things where people were bringing her snacks or other stuff that she'd ordered before, and then she was getting out. Um, stuff from her wheelchair to do things and that and it's a so this so it was a very distraction filled environment yeah. and I didn't really what did you uh, see? Uh, this was at Queen Street oh right it was the same screening oh, you did I was just oh, in right. the back row yeah okay. and I, I I literally it literally sold out and then I 
manage they manage to free up the one seat oh, that's yeah. like the assist seat. Yeah. So um yeah, so I don't want to be like, you know, oh this horrible disabled person's ruining my screening. Uh, if you're Aunt Teller, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> um but um it was just a very distraction filled yeah, yeah. thing and for a dreamlike film that's not great. Yeah. Also, I'd seen The Wild Goose Lake before at Cannes, okay. which I don't know if you saw that. No, I but that was another Chinese gangster film that was very meandering and yeah. looked nice and didn't have a lot to say. Yeah. And I kind of got a similar vibe right. off this. Yes. this. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I might, if I saw it in another light, I might. I don't know, man. There were so many people who really didn't like it. Um, I would yeah. seem to be in the minority on but, this side of the pond. Yeah, but there are a lot of other people around the world yeah, who really overseas. liked it. So, um, And I, I did drift off a bit at the end. Um, but interestingly, a film I drifted off in near the very end also made my top five, which is uh, Manta Ray. Oh, it's a yeah, Thai film yeah. that's directed by uh, Pichit Pong Rirathasakul's um, regular DP, whose yeah. name I won't... Um, do him the indignity of trying to pronounce um, partially because I don't have it in front of me, but um, it's this really um, languorous uh, story about a Rohingya refugee in Thai mm. in, in Thailand who um, uh, winds up forming this friendship with this uh, Thai guy, and they don't speak the same language. Um, and it's very oblique, and it's very slow, and very um, spare, and it's lighting, like, it, it's a sort of film that instead of, like, like relying on amazing, mm. incredible things, it's like, there's people wandering around in the wilderness at night covered with fairy lights yeah, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen, did you see it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah. you know what, yeah, and, um, and, and, yeah, just and, kind and of, trying to figure out what that was at first, and yeah. they're going, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's but the the commitment to um, tenderness mm. inside the context of you know what's a very fraught political yeah um, issue and what's often dealt with in unremittingly oblique uh, oblique not oblique ways um, this is oblique instead of bleak yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and I I just really like felt in, in tune with it and. Um, and I know I nodded off for about 15, 20 seconds near the end in that closing kind of where it gets really, it gets yeah. even more spacious than yeah, it already yeah. is. But um, I just thought it was, it was a really special film. And I, in making this list, I have kind of prioritized films that I don't think will come yeah. back that kind of highlight yeah. the mission of the um, festival. Yeah. The, yeah. Manta Ray I, um, didn't quite gel with me. Um, but I, yeah, I do. I'd agree that it's, it's doing some really interesting things and a, very kind of in a, in a setting and from, from a place that we don't get to see or hear much about. Um, so there's a lot of uh, political stuff that I just wasn't aware of. Um, yeah, but it was yeah. it, it was good. Um, I did yeah. I did enjoy it. It was just uh, I, yeah I think like, yeah, I found it a bit languorous at times. Yeah. So what other films did you enjoy more? Okay, so for me, um, so yeah, we talked about Vagabond already. Yeah. Um, uh, in my top three, I had um, uh, Celine Scammer's, well, the latest one that I've finished, so I don't know if she's made anything again. It just premiered um, at Cannes, so I think she's... Oh, yeah. A, yeah. Uh, which is Portrait of a, a Lady on Fire, which yeah. is um, fantastic. I get to talk about something again that was just beautifully shot and put together. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a thing for period films, I like dramas, yeah. um, and uh, 
the opening sh- sequence to that film really sticks in my head with um, the um, the artist lady who's coming aboard on a, on a boat, a rowboat, and sort of drops her stuff. Is it the, the opening in the classroom, or is it? Um, or is uh, it? I thought it was in the boat, unless that's the. So I thought they have the classroom thing, and they like, and they're like, "What's that painting in the corner?" It's oh, a portrait yeah, of a lady yeah, on fire. Yeah, yeah. That really bizarre kind of yeah. framing sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay. Maybe that was. I, I, I'm betraying that I'm not as big a fan of, uh, as yeah. you, but, uh, we'll but yeah. Keep going. yeah, yeah. I love the um, the relationship drama. The two. Um, mm. It was mostly um, pretty pretty interesting. Done. There was a couple of um, sequences in it that maybe didn't quite ring quite as true to me. Mm. Um, the setup for the film just basically is that um, there's this woman that. Um, young woman mm. that her family is wanting to marry her off. Yeah, but in order to marry her off, she has to get a portrait painted of her for a reason to be that, sent to yeah yeah to be she's from a well-to-do family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she refused to sit for the last person. So this new portrait painter is brought in. But the idea is, lady, is that yes, female and and um, the previous one was a man. Oh, was it? I yeah. had forgotten that detail. But the idea is that she's brought in under false pretenses, and it's not known that she's going to be painting the portrait. Yeah, and so it's just brought. To she be brought a friend. A friend, yeah. But, yeah. But, and partially they're um, concerned about the young lady because she's had a brother who's um, died recently. Oh, yes. And so she's right, kind yeah. of in some possible depression. And, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So a so Portrait of a Lady on Fire was the last film I saw at Cannes. Oh, okay. And um, I didn't have a lot of gas in the tank at yeah. that point. And, um, and it, it, there were things that I appreciated about it. Um, one thing I, that... I've never experienced in a film before is having the profound sense of dislocation when suddenly a man enters the frame yeah. and you realize you've been in a woman only universe for an hour yeah. and it's not that the man's doing anything transgressive, but yeah. just that sense of being there, yeah. which you, mm. it, you, which you know is such a, um, you a rare thing that you know you shouldn't be that rare, and yet yeah, it was. yeah. I mean, I, my workplace is a bit like that. I like in that mm. I um, I've worked primarily with women, and for right. a job a, a little while ago, when um, I, I I was sitting in a staff meeting at one point and realised that I was the only guy there, mm. and that had probably been the case for the last six months, and I never right. twigged. Mm. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Mm. And my boss was a lady, and, and <laughs> you know, it's just um, mm. something I don't really sort of reckon. Notice that much? Did you? But did you notice that in the film when no. the man walked in? Oh, that's interesting because to me it was a, like so kind of. I just got into so much this atmosphere of this world of women, and mm-hmm. it was almost like um, um, Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy, for instance. All uh, the characters yeah. are female, yeah. and um, it almost felt like this kind of this world that's been created that's yeah. just just women, and that there's no men entering it. And you sometimes see yeah. films that are made that way. Right. Um, or where the man is set up is like kind of the very deliberate, like anti. I think you Mustang, like where there's the oh, yeah, yeah. sisters and then yeah. there's the dad, the parents, but, and the uncles. Uh, and yeah, the but but this is just a man just by being yeah. in this space that we've seen women sharing their rituals and feelings and all. You know, I mean, there's a whole subthread about a maid and yeah. abortion and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think uh, interesting because Celine Scammer, the other films I've heard that I've seen have all been um, sort of set. Current um, and uh, particular kind of social milieu, um, yeah, tabloid, um, about a, a young girl who's um, exploring her gender, um, and then uh, and and whether she's um, a boy or you know yeah, yeah. he's a boy, um, and and then yeah, girlhood yeah. Uh, about um, uh, the uh, young black teens in 
I presume it's in Paris, but I don't know France that well. I can't remember. Um, and uh, yeah, and so this was like a jump into another world for her, and I was yeah, kind yeah. of wondering how it would go, and I think she handled it really yeah. well. Yeah, I feel like a, it's a well-made film. There's just something about her pacing and storytelling that didn't land for me. But again, mm. um, it's coming back Buffing, soon, yeah. so I, I'd like to give it another look um, because I do. Yeah, think, I think it'd be worth going with I a think, little more energy. And yeah, and... I, I think I mean there's definitely something there, and there's something a lot yeah. of people have responded to. But I also didn't really respond to Girlhood, right. so it's. But they feel like very different films. You didn't think the dancing in the hotel room? That, what, that oh, that was fine. Uh, I'd seen that scene before. Yeah, I'd oh, yeah, seen yeah. the film and. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's nice, you yeah. know, but it doesn't justify the other 114 minutes of the film. Um, what about you? This one I know we won't disagree on because you wrote the program notes for it, oh, which yeah. is the uh, the river. Yeah. Um, uh, and Amir Baigazin is one of these guys that um, Jake has been beating the drum for as long as we've been doing yeah, this Yeah, how many lessons? I, um, At least, yeah. It was uh, one of my faves that year. Um, yeah, and... Um, and so it's a Kazakh filmmaker? Yeah. Yeah, and Harmony Lessons, I get the impression, was quite brutal. Yeah, very brutal. It's set in an yeah. in a, in a, in a, um, orphanage, um, yeah. Boys of Agia Grimm. Yeah, um, and so there was this kind of... Um, I had a lot of, like, uh, Jacob and Steve Garden was the other guy who was really raving about it, but they're also kind of like... You both have a bleak. ability to enjoy bleak, austere <laughs> stuff, and, like, it was the next to last day of film festival, and I'm like... Oh, do I really want to do this to myself? But I'll never get to see it again. But it could just be. And finally, I said, to, and I'd actually like wound up. There were two films that I didn't see because I was so tired and recovering yeah. from jet lag that I just I, I was going to go see Manos and I didn't yeah, get good. to it. And I, I, I know lots of other people loved Manos, but um, but anyway, I really but I was just like, I'll go, and if I don't like it, I'll go home, and you know. Um, and I just loved it. I just, yeah. um, it's, you know, this, this story of these young boys living on this farm. Um, it's not what you call and, a bright sparking farm. <laughs> no, no, but it but does a layer have, of weird quirk it to it. That yeah, that it does have unexpected yeah. surprises in it. And yeah. I don't want to give those away. But, um, you know, when you're starting it, you're not even really sure what period it's in. Because yeah. it feels like it yeah, could be almost weird. anywhere in the next, what, previous hundred years. Eventually, mm. at some point, you see an old shitty 4x3 TV and you're like, okay, well, it's, you know, they've got a car, they've got yeah. a TV. It's in the last 30 or 40 years. And then, without spoiling anything, something happens yeah. that very specifically <laughs> nails the date. But also, um, most of the shots, I can't re- I don't think it's quite all of them, but I think most of the shots are tripod locked Locked down. off, yeah. And... Um, that's mostly his style and yeah and just his compositional sense is just yeah, he's, stunning and, yeah it's, um, it's like yeah. really really good painting shots yeah. basically yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and, and not just and it's not just that he has a nice eye although that helps but that there's real thought about why he's doing yeah. things when for instance there's the titular river I yeah. love saying titular yeah. um, and <laughs> When the boys start going to this river, which is has a dangerous current, and you can from that get some rough idea yeah. of where some plot ideas might go, um, it's photographed in a never in a way that you never see the far bank. So, yeah, you can only see. Yeah, yeah, until they go there with another character, yeah. and that's the first time the far bank is revealed. Yeah. You know, and that and um and, there's, and there's, there's something to say about the boundlessness of their world that's experienced before they meet this character that yeah. suddenly seems so much more bounded. Yeah, and there's nothing else that 
you know that that's never like underlined in any other way yeah. other than the framing of those shots and i feel like there's lots of ideas like that through the film yeah, so i there's pick a up couple on some of, i don't of um uh shots looking uh on either side of a doorway and the way the light comes through on that and sort of the sense that gives to the um to the scene and what's happening with the characters yeah. which are yeah just really really beautifully put together and mm. like you say well thought out um, yeah so what's your uh, next uh uh, next one is is um, Quentin Dupieux's uh, The Dame. Oh, Deerskin. Dear I fucking love Deerskin. Yeah, so good. Um, I should, I mean, I didn't put any of the films that I saw in Cannes yeah. on my list. If, if, um, but if, if, you, if, I have, if you want to see yeah. just a, a, a piece of weirdness that is totally my aesthetic, that yeah. I, uh, this film, and it's only what? 70, 76 minutes. 76 minutes? Yeah. It's very easy. <laughs> but and, what I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird, but also it's like. Um, it's there's actually an emotional depth to it yeah, that there yeah. isn't to rubber or wrong. Yeah, you know, and I like rubber a lot. Yeah, but um, I went to it like kind of being like, oh, is it just going to be another weird thing? And and Jean Dujardin is just so charismatic. He's so committed. Yeah, but the, Jean Dujardin, like um, the artist. Yeah, um, you know, most people probably know him from and from an English speaking yeah. audience. Um, he's in this bizarre film which has him having kind of. Bizarre conversations with a 100% deerskin jacket. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and he's so committed to it, to a performance that's kind of just surreal and ridiculous, but at the same time, really quite gripping and moving. Yeah, and that, I mean, that was the thing that's just like, they're fundamentally like the crisis of masculinity, mm. so to speak. Mm. Um, I feel like this film just really nails in a consistently yeah. deadpan absurdist well, way that yeah. always delighted me. Adele Hanel, who's in yeah. Portrait of Lady in the Fire, Fire yeah. is also in this yeah. and um and gets some delightful moments. But yeah. um um yeah, it it it's just so simultaneously incisive and absurd. And then when certain plot twists happen, mm-hmm. it's like kind of whoa and then like, oh that makes sense. Yeah, but yeah. Whoa, <laughs> you know, and even just like um, the the production design and photography, because the jacket itself is kind of like this tan color, yeah, and yet he's designed and photographed everything, so it's almost always the most lustrous object in the frame, yeah, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, ah, oh, deerskin is special. <laughs> to to to, uh, to to quote, um, uh, what's his name? The character's name? George? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's George. Yeah, yeah. Um, to quote him. <laughs> when he's when he's trying to just come to terms with how wonderfully yeah perfectly wonderful this uh, this jacket is <laughs> yeah yeah and it's one of those performances that if he yeah. winked even a little at the camera would just fall apart yeah and it's just the level of commitment like yeah. it is uh, if it had been in competition it would have been my pick for the best yeah. um, male performance at can um, <laughs> That year, it was just not even close, yeah. you know. Uh, um, well, I mean, you know, the ones the ones in Parasite were great, but they had other awards to get yeah. that film. <laughs> um, my the, and these these really aren't in order, I because the the ones that uh, that I saw like Deerskin and another yeah. one that we'll mention, um, I liked more than any of the films that I saw when I was back. Yeah. Um, but the one that I haven't mentioned yet that really struck me was a Mexican documentary called Midnight Family. Oh, is that um, about the, the, the ambulance? ambulance. Yeah. yeah, and um, to a certain degree, it's a 
let's go to another place and find out how fucked it is. Yeah. Um, but what's special about it is the American guy that went down there um, embedded with this one family brought mm. two really sensitive to low light cameras. And it was just him in the ambulance shooting for ages and basically Mexico has a private ambulance system because there's only like 43 public ambulances or something for a bajillion people Um, don't quote me on that stat needless to say but there's this competition of these for profit ones that will go and pick people up and then like you know when they take them to the um, hospital Mm. try to get money out of them one way or another and so this is um, potent ground for any number of ethical quandaries mm. um, or ethical dubiousnesses. Um, and it's a testament to the film that it kind of builds itself around a few set pieces, but and then also gives a lot of breath and life to just following the family as they go through their existence. And um, yeah, it was a and because it's so much at night and relies on the darkness so much, it was a film that I was really glad I saw oh, yeah. in the cinema and yeah. um, and just embedded in that world a bit. Um, mm. Yeah, so a really terrific documentary. I think it's a Madman documentary, okay. so I think it will we'll come, come to yeah. Doc Play or something yeah. like that at very least at some point. Cool. Um, I don't know if they still do physical releases of DVDs yeah. in 2019 or how we see things anymore. It's all a bit confusing, but yeah. yeah. And I, and I see that your number one might be... Uh, yeah, well, that yeah. was off, off your recommendation, actually, yeah. from, from Khan, um, which mm. was basically, um, if you this is one of the best things you'd seen, so don't read any further. And yeah. I took that advice, so I didn't read any further, and holy crap, Bacardo. Um, oh, Bacardo. So, um, Juliano Dornell and Kleber Mendo- Mendoca? Kleber Mendoca Fijo, which Fijo, Fijo is yeah. uh, Brazilian for... Uh, junior. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so, yeah. Um, so Clay Doko Fijo directed Neighboring Sounds, Sounds and Aquarius. Yeah. And I, if I recall, Julian Donnell was the production designer on at least one of those films. But oh, yeah. it's been a friend with him since film oh, yeah. school days. Oh, yeah. And they've been kicking around this film yeah. for ages. And so they co-directed. So it's kind of um, near future plays with um, genre, vague, yeah, genre, sci-fi, um, thriller, um, mm. kind of. Yeah, crime thriller, psychological thriller, um, political thriller. Yeah, <laughs> uh, highly political and, yeah. and and vehemently so, and yeah. and and wonderfully kind of harsh. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> taking no prisoners. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was so good. And yeah. the, and um, oh, um, the uh, the the way that it kind of it, it, like it set up a couple of um. Uh, uh, genre red herrings, which I mm. really loved, which I I don't really yeah. want to talk about in case people want to see it because it's, it's a hard film to talk about without yeah, spoiling. Yeah, and um, I mean, I'd like I'd like to see it a second time, and if if scheduling yeah. had permitted, I would have seen it a second time um, because it is such a ride. And but it was so great um, when I saw it at Cannes. Um, I saw it the morning after the premiere, oh, yeah. and um, People have kind of talked about it as a horror film. Oh, so um, before it premiered, yeah. there was rumor that it was a horror film, and so I was going in expecting something maybe supernatural or demonic, and yeah. that's totally not no, the register of it. Yeah. You know, it's, I um, mean, there's, there's some, there's some. It's quite... closer to First Blood or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh-huh. I mean, there's there's um, there's certainly some some gory scenes. Mm. Um, so it gets sort of. Do you want to live or die? Yeah, yes, <laughs> but but um, sort of all over the place and, and uh, bloody, but. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly not hor- horrific, except for the kind of 
political, politically horrific. Mm. horrific. Um, yeah, well, the gut, the gut twisting, yeah, uh, yeah. the gut churning twist at the yeah, end yeah, when yeah. you have that moment where you realize what's been going on the whole time. Yeah. You're just like, oh. um, but a um, couple of really interesting performances. Sonia Braga um, yeah. is a fantastic as this kind of really kind of misanthropic doctor character sort um, of the village, yeah. matriarch of the village yeah, but not yeah. quite sort of yeah so somewhere between matriarch and, and angry woman. old yeah, yeah woman at the edge of town and then udo kia is oh. this, <laughs> this fantastic <laughs> role as the kind of the evil i'm not shooting <laughs> <laughs> and they have a scene uh. together which is so kind of bizarre and just has so oh, much electricity yeah. to it. Yeah, to set to spend our ballet, yeah, yeah. no less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just yeah. a, a wild ride of a film that that's so surprising, how unexpected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's definitely if you get a chance to see it, just don't. Yeah, I mean, as long as you got a, a little and, bit of a tolerance for blood. And, and one one yeah. minor like really nothing spoiler. It's one of the best mullets you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> the side of the Argentinian football squad. Yeah. So good. I haven't seen the Argentinian football squad, so I'll have to trust you on that. <sighs> so let's, um, shall we pivot to our other topic of yeah. discussion? So a couple weeks ago on Twitter, um, basically a couple months ago, somebody had brought up this question of who was the director of the decade. Ah, uh, yeah. And, my initial answer is, well, it's Jean Favreau because he came up with the whole yeah. template for the Marvel movies and now he's done all these live-action Disney remakes. And so that's going to yeah. be, in terms of what we're seeing for the next 10 years, yeah. it's basically he's going to have set the vision for that. Mm. But I think it's safe to say that neither you or I think of <laughs> the term director of the decade quite that way. No. And so so I had been thinking about this a lot This what, who is the best director of the decade what does that mean mm. and so I set some parameters up to kind of set the discussion say okay we're just going to focus on film I know everybody wants to say that Twin Peaks is a 19 hour movie but we're just going to focus on film yeah. um, which actually really got some strong pushback from people who were like yeah. you know how can you divide those two I'm living like, in the past you know and it's like and I, and I do think maybe this is probably the last decade where you could yeah, reasonably do that, and I can understand people finding it unreasonable. You know, yeah. we can talk about somebody like Ryan Johnson, who some of his most iconic work has been on Breaking Bad. You know, mm. or that David Fincher, who you know work on Mindhunter, is yeah. is um, more striking than his work on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm. Um, but I do think like. Even if this is the last decade of cinema, let's celebrate the last decade of cinema and say there there was mm. for this you know certain period, year. well for a hundred year period, yeah. this thing called feature films yeah. that had cultural primacy that is now going to be lost and, forever. And I, and I even think for this decade, it's fair to say that primarily in this decade, the significant works for these people have been in film. It's only kind of in the last few years that um, television has started sort of really um yeah i mean it, living it, it, where um people who would have th- thought of as um auteurs or film directors have sort of been inhabiting the space more yeah i mean it's it's interesting like what we what we'll look how we'll look at it in retrospect yeah. how we'll look at like from david chase to david simon in previous mm-hmm. years to um vince gilligan you know breaking bad started yeah. in 2008 and yeah. um I mean, I was watching Better Call Saul when I was gone. I'm like, yeah. this is more quote unquote cinematic than most movies I see, you know, um, in its use of camera and its use yeah. of lighting and its use of mise en scène for storytelling. Yeah. It's more sophisticated than 
80% of the things yeah. that play at the multiplex or the art house. And yeah, I, I agree. But I think, yeah. I think that was the kind of the, not, not the very beginning, but I think that was the strong beginning of this starting to mm. become more of a, a thing rather yeah. than kind of right in the thick of it. Yeah. yeah. And, and now that we have, I mean, the movies have become, so many of them have become this committee sort of enterprise, yeah. be it the Marvel films or the yeah. Disney films, where you have, you know, either second units that are directed by things and aesthetic decisions that are made prior to arrival. And, you know, obviously directors like Taika Waititi have put on their own yeah. spin yeah. on it, but it's still like, you know, yeah. there's still a lot of it that they're not able to. Well, I, I still feel around. like that about TV as well, um, where you have, there is still a kind of a template within which people are working uh, narratively. Not, not some things mm. less so, but... but um, Yeah, I mean, a- anyone who uh, is a Twin Peaks Season 3 fan and, would argue with you yeah, here yeah. only on that And even point, like, but, um, yeah. something like Atlanta, I think, yeah. ignores uh, some of that structure a lot. Um, yeah, I mean... And it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but um, but I think a lot of even what people um, have said, like I think of something in the wire which I really love. Yeah. Um, even that had a. As surprising it might have been, there was a sense of you have to reach this point by this point. Um, you almost like you end the episode and then you tease. Yeah, yeah. And get that feeling of like, oh, I wish I hadn't I didn't yeah. have to turn this off. Um, yeah, in a way that film doesn't have to adhere to that, and if it's like a three or four hour meandering thing it can just do what it likes it can yeah. yeah but um but i think there's going to be more and more um shifting of the mold of yeah. what episodes are and we're already seeing some of that yeah. and i think it's only going to yeah and particularly when now continue, when we, we're, we're yeah. not um tied to uh ad breaks mm. and we're advertising revenue is happening in yeah. a different way and so whereas tv had to be edited to fit within these kind of constrained breaks to a degree and 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 so you had to have these beats that sort of fit around that. Now we don't. Yeah. And du- yeah, so duration yeah. turns out to be what it whatever it is, what yeah. it's appropriate for the moment. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. So I, I I struggled with that, but I said, look, we'll do. We're going to say only feature work and only people's contributions to features should be considered, not their mm-hmm. music videos or TV shows or art installations. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and I and I said a minimum of three feature films, and that was interesting as well because yeah. actually. A, it blew away one of my favorite directors of the decade, who is yeah. Panos Cosmatos. Yeah. And technically, Kleber Mendoca Fijo, it's like his third film's co-directed. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and and Helene Catet and Bruno... Um, Bruno uh, Helene Catet and Bruno Frizzani, yeah. yeah. They um, they only made two films this decade. Amer with, K- debuted in 2009, even though it didn't play here until yeah, 2010. Yeah. Um, and, it, like... I think it was, um, uh, well, no, actually, it's just that I hadn't seen, I haven't had a chance to see uh, Knives Out yet, but Ryan Johnson. Yeah, well, it's sneaking out just under the wire, you know. Oh, yeah. and, and, I mean, technically this discussion is a bit premature because yeah. there are still a few directors. I mean, a lot of directors' body of work is not going to shift significantly yeah. in my estimation with whatever they mm. have coming in the next couple months. I mean, I think Noah Baumbach's okay, but Marriage Story isn't going to suddenly propel him into the top five no. for me. Um, whereas um, some other people, that might be the case. But yeah. in some of these cases, I might not know till next July. Yeah. So, or, or yeah. you know, depending on when the films make it to New Zealand one way or another. Yeah, and particularly with people who've had a couple of strong showings and then one that you just kind of went, oh, mm. that was for me a bit of a bomb. Well, and that's actually one of my number three in particular is somebody who's had some I really struggled with, but also had 
I've I checked my ratings on Letterboxd and I've given fourteen five star reviews yeah. to films that come have come out this decade, and he made two of them. Yeah. So it's like, do you punish somebody for making two masterpieces? Yeah. And then doing some of those other films that don't work for you as well, but that are also maybe part of that artist's journey. Yeah. In becoming that, and um, and I kind of feel that way about um, a couple of these filmmakers is that looking at their work over the decade is yeah. really exciting and see how it's grown and developed and yeah. really, and you know, it just, it's this arbitrariness of taking this measure of time. Yeah. Whereas if you divided it 2005 to 2014 yeah. or whatever, yeah. it suddenly yeah. might look really different, you know, and yeah. um, people who rose to the top, like, um, would sort of like, I mean, I'm not as huge a fan, but David O. Russell started out the decade oh, with yeah. like Fighter and uh, oh, Silver yeah. Linings Playbook and all that stuff, yeah. and um, um, the other one I can't remember. But you know, everybody, oh, American Hustle, American Hustle, and yeah. and there were lots of people who loved those films. And then um, I don't know why <laughs> they're, <out. laughs> they're not in this room. <laughs> well, I like the Fighter, okay, but um, but yeah, but he's he did Joy, which nobody liked, like, and then yeah. just went off the map and yeah. hasn't made anything for years. But yeah. like. You know, if you divided it differently, who knows? Mm. Or Alexander Payne's another example. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm. All right, so uh, let's jump into it. Uh, yeah. Well, do you want to um, yeah, okay. start with your number five? So my number five is uh, Robert Greene, um, who I, I still haven't seen his earlier stuff. I'm very keen to. Yeah. But um, so far uh, this decade, I've uh, seen and I think reviewed um, all of his uh, three... Oh, maybe not Actress. I haven't even reviewed that. But Actress... And then uh, Kate plays Christine uh, about Christine Chubbuck, and then yeah. um, and uh, Bisbee seventeen, Bisbee seventeen, which was yeah. last year, I think, played the festival twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all of which were um, they were among my top for the year. Um, yeah, and top at festival. Um, and so he works primarily in nonfiction. Um, I don't know if he's done. Any... Yeah, I don't know if that's fair to say. Actually, <laughs> well, well, you... well, all three of those films have a lot of fiction in them. Yeah, well, but but yeah. I mean that sense of. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's fictional elements, and, and he's playing with, with form and structure, yeah. but... Um, it's the broader construction yeah, of documentary, documentary or yeah. hybrid cinema, cinema or whatever yeah. it's called these days. Yeah, um, and so he's just... The way he approaches ideas and um, and the way that he kind of looks at how we form truth um, and how we shape what we think about ourselves and what we think of... So, I mean, actress is a big mm. idea of that, of how we shape our idea about ourselves. Um, an actress. I know we've talked about Kate Poise, Christine, and Bisbee Seventeen in previous times, but I don't know if we've talked about yeah. So that's um, Brandy Brandy Burr, uh, who was yeah, an actress who's been on the Wire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so I, I knew her from the Wire. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it was really about she, after the Wire, she'd done a few things and then sort of dropped off and then become uh, um, a mum and yeah. sort of dropped out of acting and moved to a, the same small town that um, Robert Greening's family had moved yeah. to at some point. Um, somewhere near, New York, maybe. Can't oh, remember. I can't remember. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, and so she was um, just getting to that point where I think child was old enough. She really wanted to kind of... And she kind of had that sense of reframing herself as a mother and that what that meant for her identity. And she wanted to um, reconnect with her acting work. And, yeah. Um, and so was uh, making some moves to get back into, into work as an actress. And, um, yeah. and, and Robert sort of uh, tracked some of that, observed yeah. some of that gave her a chance to kind of frame her own version of some of those things and, and, mm. and a, very much a, a sense of performance to her um, part in that film. Um, and so, you know, like the film itself is a role for her as well as, you know, it's actually her own life. 
and yeah. how, how you want to frame yourself within your life. Um, so she had some really uh, well. And that question about um, performance and yeah. and that I mean that's at, that is such at the heart of Kate Poise Christine. Yeah, and, and but yeah. it's also at the heart of each of our own lives because we sure, yeah. we have our roles that we play within various contexts and and we kind of shape the perception we have of ourselves and that people have of us within those. And so if you've ever known I'm someone... I'm only ever who I am, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 a, a good example of that, I had a good friend at university who moved from uh, uh, from uh, Taranaki down south and moved to Auckland and then completely reframed herself and her life when she moved um, to Auckland uh, and yeah. started doing some different things and like moved in a very yeah. different sphere. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I don't know known her from being up in Auckland at uni. Mm. And then we went down to something with a, a family and, and old friends, sort of, I don't know, birthday or something, um, down at Taranaki and stayed with the family and stuff. And they're lovely. Um, but how she fitted into that community mm. and the way they kind of saw her and how she kind of acted was so out of step with what she was like yeah. in Auckland and how we saw her that it was, it was kind of jarring to me. I was like the hell yeah um but you, this robert green's work really looks at that way of um of that sort of really reflects back to us how do we how do we frame ourselves and present ourselves in the world is that something um in terms of uh, you as maori is that something that you find that yourself having to do in in terms of being on the marae versus being in pakaha spaces uh, yeah, or not uh, so much a uh, uh, little yes yes Definitely, and more so as I've kind of reconnected with my um, Māori heritage. It's not that I was completely disconnected, but I'm sort of connecting more right, yeah. with that because my, my parents, because of what, I guess, how they grew up, right. disconnected with that in terms of the everyday. You know, like we always went to Malai, and we, always, yeah. and we grew up with Māori um, not being spoken, but words always threaded through our language and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but we very much were like you know, one of my cousins used to go oh you're like the Pakia cousins almost you know, yeah like, yeah you know, um, who were connected more closely to them than I yeah um, and so yeah there is a sense of how you want to frame yourself and and some of that and is how it, others are willing yeah. to frame you given yeah. that yeah now yeah so I mean, it's something that I've thought about yeah. a lot in terms of my own life um, and I, th- I like the way that he kind of explores that and mm. sort of throws that up as a as a kind of thing of what is truth. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, and that it's all about identity construction. And the, the cool thing about Bisbee 17 that I loved was taking that Mm. idea and then shifting it to a town, communal, you know, and that that what does it mean to be this place in, Mm. in what, what's incidental, what's chosen, what's embedded into the DNA at a level that you can't shake off. Yeah. I mean, Robert Greene was certainly a, um, strong contender for my yeah. list, and um, and if I see his other two films, it's still possible that he might, um, yeah, shake in there. Um, I did you have? Well, because the year's not over yet. Got a um, there's two. There's two filmmakers that could um, that I'm holding the spot for, and the, and it's going to be a photo finish. Um, so Martin Scorsese, young buck, um, I, I think he's got a promising future ahead of him. Um, I would say he did not start off the the decade great. I wasn't a big Hugo fan. Oh, um, yeah, no. And he's done a lot of documentaries over the decade, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen his Rolling Thunder thing for Netflix. I haven't seen um, the 50-year argument and such. Um, but Wolf of Wall Street, 
yeah. um, was where, and it was a film I struggled with the first time, and then the second time I'm like, no, this is really, this is yeah. really strong, and this is really working, doing what it's meant to do, and actually, even though it's using those codes that we're familiar with yeah. from some of his other films like Goodfellas and Casino. Mm. It's actually quite subversive it to him mm. to apply those codes to white collar crime. Yeah. And to also use just some of the cunning moves that he makes of like juking your adrenaline with like the Lemonheads cover of Mrs. Robinson yeah. when the you know the bust happens and having it pulled out from under you. Yeah. Um and that was just a prelude, as it turned out, for Silence, which I think is one of the great American films of mm. the decade, um, which I saw twice in the theater. And I think it's well, really got a raw deal. Um, and I think it's going to stand as one of Scorsese's top five films at the mm. end of his career, um, whenever the heck that comes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really and it's such a that. powerful exploration of spirituality in a way that echoes another film that I'll be mentioning later on. And um, and so now he's got The Irishman coming. And I don't know much about it. Oh, so The Irishman uh, just debuted at New York Film Festival and will be premiering on Netflix in a month, but they'll do some screenings of it at Academy and some other places beforehand. Yeah. And it's based on a mob uh, memoir called I Heard You Paint Houses for a Living. All right. um, and so it's based on a true story. It's got Pacino, De Niro, right. Joe Pesci, um, a couple other... All the old players. Big yeah. yeah, well, it's the first time Pacino and De Niro yeah. have worked together in a Scorsese film. Oh, yeah. And, um, and the word... For, and it's super long. It's like three and a half hours. Oh, yeah. um, but the word from New York Film Festival is like, actually, this is really strong. And this mm. is um, a really interesting kind of minor key late period Yeah. Um, look back and and it's really relying heavy on this digital de-aging technology that's all the rage yesterday uh rage these days excuse me that mm. um ang lee used to disastrous effect in gemini man um <laughs> which will stand as the worst film of the year <laughs> we could talk i could talk about gemini man for a while but anyway so scorsese's one the other um which is kind of the complete flip side is the filmmaking duo of aaron moorhead and justin benson who I don't know um, them. you'll you do. Um, do they made a film called Resolution uh, which came out on Blu-ray here um, and it's a low budget horror about this guy um, who is trying to get off drugs and his friend has handcuffed to him to a radiator in this cabin mm -hmm. um, and then some other some weird stuff starts happening and then their next film was called Spring and that was in the incredibly strange oh, section yeah, yeah, yeah. and spring is sort of without spoiling too much it's sort of halfway between before sunrise and american werewolf in london but more hp lovecraft and sadder yeah. and um it, there's something that's funny about these guys because they do a lot of things that I don't really like. Their films are slightly bro-y. They're oh, yeah. slightly overly reliant on handheld. Yeah. Um, but there's just something about the way they come together that really nails into this emotional truth of the situation and manages to really balance uh, supernatural conceits with these really human mm. dramas. And that um, really takes... Uh, itself to the next level in The Endless, which played at Academy at the start of last year, which is kind of a sequel to Resolution. 
um, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more kind of they're in the same universe yeah. though, um, but it's about um, these kids who are raised in this cult and are adults and wind up um, going back to find out what happened and you know when I say cult you expect kind of a midsummer thing and actually this is something very different and very powerful about time and the ways we find ourselves trapped by the past and um, it is a mind-blowing film and both Spring and um, Endless are four and a half star films for me and they have a new film that just premiered uh, called Synchronic, which has uh, it has Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan, oh, I think. And it, again, has um, some kind of time-based... I think it might be time travel in it. I don't quite know. They're cops in New Orleans investigating something. But um, one of the duo's mothers died... Parents died during the uh, making of The Endless, and I think it was a suicide. And so there's a really heavy, from what I understand, emotional undercurrent to this yeah. cop drug time travel movie. And I, I think um, there's been a few um, genre people who I've been really excited about this decade, and um, they've just consistently improved themselves with every film. And if Synchronic yeah. continues that, then that's my number five. Oh, cool. So number four. Number four for me. Um, uh, I'd have to go uh, some more um, known quantities. Uh, so the, the Coen brothers. Um, Who? Uh, oh, did you? <laughs> um, just a couple of known guys um, from Good old boys from never Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So so let's go. So what have they done this, this decade? This decade. Yeah. So I think um, True Grit um, yeah. was uh, the, the the remake of. Well, it wasn't a remake. It was. Um, Re- Readaptation, yeah. Um, then Inside Lewin Davis, um, then Hail Caesar, yeah. and then uh, more recently via Netflix, Buster Scruggs, yeah. um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. Um, the latter had some fantastic moments in it, but yeah. sad not to see a Cohen outing in a cinema. Yeah. Um, but but it was like it was it wasn't their strongest piece for me, but uh, but there were pieces in it that were stronger than the girl many. who rattled. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That many people. Um, Put out in their whole film career. So, no, fair enough. Yeah, um, but a couple there. True Grit. I love a good western, and mm-hmm. I really, really liked uh, what they did with um, True Grit. I mean, Jeff Bridges, fantastic. I really like how they um, how they had Matt Damon's character sort of as this kind of slightly sleazy, kind of a, a weird mix of good and, and <laughs> kind of old school. Kind Sorry, of I'm just remembering lines from yeah. the film as you uh, um, mention his character. Um, but um, but Haley Stainfield as Maddie Ross, what mm. a what a blast onto the screen that was! For well, I mean, she'd probably done a couple other mm. things for that, but this is the first thing I'd seen her in. And mm. Holy crap, she just came sort of fully formed in that, and um, as a young mm. um, child actress, um, well, child, whatever, she was like what, 12, 13, something like yeah. that. Um, she was just fantastic, and like held her own with all those guys, um, and it was just a fantastically um, entertaining western. But it had that that Cohen dialogue that. What smart yeah. sort of uh, thing, and it, and it fit really nicely in the in the um, in the setting and the way that they kind of um, gave old west um, kind of tones and inflections to it was um, was really nice. Yeah. Um, I was just yeah, I, I think I saw it three times in cinema. Wow. Yeah, I, I just I enjoyed it so much. Man, that I, just I, I saw it, it once. Again. I liked it. 
Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was that. But then there was um, Inside Lewin Davis, and that just hit me. Um, right. There was something about the melancholy of it, um, the like um, right. the slow death of a dream, basically, and someone kind of. Mm. I mean, there was there was uh, there was a lot of melancholy. I mean, Lewin Davis had lost his musical partner and was kind of dealing with yeah. that. He was kind of almost made it but not quite and was kind of slightly out of step with the time um, and couldn't sort of find his his niche yeah he, he wasn't commercial enough to kind of make a proper go of it and so he was slowly burning all of his social bridges he like he'd obviously built up a lot of capital with his um with his ability to play and sing and, yeah. and hit an emotional spot but then had slowly it was slowly burning all of those <laughs> yeah yeah few contacts that he had um, and those of us who have been in creative communities yeah. have seen that kind of yeah. thing unfold in various ways. Yes. Yeah. And, and but then, just as he's sort of slowly coming to grips with the fact that he's got this dream and he's got a talent and he's got something special, but it's just not going to work for him. And yeah. he's trying to he's trying to fight fend it off as much as he can, but it's not happening for him. Yeah. And then you've got this lovely cat cat <laughs> that's thrown in there. I mean, there, there were parts to it, like there was the mm. the, the sequence with um, John Goodman as the as yeah. the kind of guy that picks him up and and is a bit of an asshole um, and yeah. gas guy, um, uh, yeah. um, which didn't work as well for me. But um, that film, and again, that was one that I'd seen. I think I saw. I went to a media preview, then I then, right. I, then I went to another um, screening. Then I thought, there's another friend I need to take to this, um, and mm. I saw it three times in cinema, and then subsequently got the Blu-ray oh, yeah. and watched it. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those ones that I just watch every so often because. It, I should give it another it, it, look. It gut punches me. I saw it once, and I saw it in New Caledonia with English with French subtitles. Yeah. And then afterwards, I got sort of <coughs> stranded at the cinema because there weren't yeah. any cabs around. And there, <laughs> there was a guy who was um, um, taking his pants down in front of people with one hand oh, and asking for money with the other. Wow. And it was so it was like a, a very weird night. And like the film kind of didn't wasn't the sort of the central um, thing that it should. So. Yeah, and mm. and that, I think that was really just just Oscar Isaac really just hitting his stride in terms of people going this guy has got yeah. something um, I remember I'd seen him um, in Hypatia uh, 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 no what was it there was a film that starred um, Rachel Weiss as Agora a, yeah Agora yeah. Um, which he played a significant role in yeah. and I'd seen that and I thought I didn't like the film that much but I really liked him yeah um, and then he played the side character in Drive he played um, yeah the, yeah um, the um, husband who'd been in prison yeah um, and um, Standard I think that was the name yeah I think um, that is actually and he was really good in that role as well as a kind yeah. of not quite the hardened criminal, more kind of like I yeah. don't really know what I'm doing, and yeah. um, I'm in over my head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so from that, then and also like the character that feels like should be a stock character, yeah. like oh, I've fallen in love with a girl down the hall, and now yeah. her, you know, her, her lover's back from, from uh, prison. Prison, yeah. and, you know, that, and that relationship, you know how that's supposed to go, yeah, and then it doesn't. Does it? At all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this was him hitting a stride, and I mean, the fact that he. Um, uh, after that, I looked up. Uh, there's, you know, he's got videos of him. Uh, he had a video series on that he put on YouTube of him singing in stairwells because he was a musician as well. He'd, right, you know, yeah. he was him he actually able to play, play for yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that 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 film just really grabbed me. It's one of my top films of the decade, I yeah. think. So um, so I had to go in there. And then um, Hail Caesar got a lot of kind of oh yeah, that's all right from people. Yeah. But I saw that. Probably just after a while, I was in the midst of um, listening to you must remember this podcast, uh, Blacklist series, yeah. and uh, Karina Longworth uh, runs through a whole of the history of the period where that was set. 
Yeah. Um, and she, she even did an episode on Eddie Mannix, who's the, char- the main character that um, Josh Brolin plays. Yeah. Um, and uh, do the characters that um, Tilda Swinton plays feature in it? Are they real people? Uh, or are they, um... I can't remember, but there definitely are um, gossip columnists that um, that feature. Yeah. Um, well, you know, for some of the, like the um, Hollywood Reporter and those kind of magazines. Um, but uh, that film, I found it funny. I found um, the performances really engaging. But once I learnt a little more about the kind of the history of the culture and the piece. At uh, the time that it was set yeah, in, yeah. it was hitting so many kind of uh, bits of historical information yeah. and kind of highlighting them in a really interesting way, um, and then kind of putting that Rye Cohen twist on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that that worked for me a whole lot better, I think, than it did for a lot of other people. Interesting point. I was just thinking about this whole decades thing and thinking about some of the films that aren't on that list, mm. and if we were measuring. From 2007 to 2016, yeah. we'd lose Buster Scruggs, yeah. and we would add No Country for Old Men, yeah. Burn After Reading, yeah. and A Serious Man, yeah. Yeah. and that would probably be my number one yeah. um, pick, you Which know? Is just, I mean, because that's, that's, that's a stellar run. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I, and then, if you go a couple of years earlier, there's like nothing except for the Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. <laughs> so it's, just, it's funny these yeah, kind yeah. of um, but patterns but, how they but run. For, for me, they just they they mm. like those those three in particular. And Buster Scruggs, like I said, Buster Scruggs um, has some standout moments and standout mm. moments within some of its um, uh, some of its yeah. particular um, episodic bits. But um, it's just that you know it's. For, for for a Cohen film, it's not as strong as some yeah. of the others for me. Yeah, oh, it it has it has its good elements, but yeah. of the three films I mentioned there and the four films that came out that decade, it's yeah. a clear number seven for yeah. me. Um, but yeah, yeah, Cohen's anyway. Yeah. Number, so yeah. one of the things that's funny about this is I thought there would be a lot more foreign language people that came to the top for me, mm. and they didn't. And I don't know if that has to do with the vagaries of international funding or what yeah. I've been able to see. Um, one thing that somebody pointed out is that for female directors in particular, mm-hmm. um, it's often difficult to get films yeah. up. And so the three film limit um, can be quite challenging. Yeah. So the only... Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I was very excited to find out that um, Julia Loctev's on another project yeah. at the moment. Although to be fair, I think in her case, she just didn't have a film that she wanted to do. Oh, yeah. um, there's all, you know, you never know what the story yeah. is, but there's other directors... Um, I won't be able to pronounce her name right. The woman who directed Heal the Living and Suzanne Cattell Quinever, I think it is. Um, she's only done those two films this decade, and they're they're terrific. And mm. if she had had one more, she would have been a strong mm. contender for me. I, I vastly prefer her filmmaking to Celine Sciamma, but it's just... Where it's, the you know, way, Celine yeah. Sciamma is kind of just hovering around that place for me. She's... Yeah, oh, that, and that's somebody who's... A lot of people connect with her films. Yeah. You know? um, so the only non-Western filmmaker who made my list for this decade was Bong Joon-ho. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and what a decade. I mean, um, Mother in 2010 is, is the start. And um, and one of the things that's cool about looking at a decade for certain filmmakers is seeing the sort of movement. And and with him, it's not exactly a progression because it's yeah. almost more like a um, going off the ranch and homecoming because you have Mother, which is... Uh, this terrific Korean thriller yeah. that um, with this iconic central performance yeah. and one of the greatest final scenes in in cinema, yeah. um, which um, just this beautiful shot of 
dancing on the bus as the yeah. sunlight is going down and and one of those things that doesn't actually seem that complicated until you realize the actual amount of timing that would have to be pulled off yeah to get, get that, that shot, shot. Yeah. and just the um well there are other shots like the, there's, a, there's a particular shot that's going through like the windows of several police interview rooms that um, oh yeah that was yeah. Um, that sticks in mind for me yeah it's beautifully done yeah, yeah. um and then he went and did Snowpiercer, um, and that's a film that uh, I've se- I've seen three times in the theater. Actually, oh, wow. yeah. um, it's a pity that the visual effects weren't a little better on parts yeah. of it. Um, and there's a little bit of up and down in a couple of the performances, um, but, but so there, many standout. There's moments. so many standout moments. It's just like a pearl string yeah, of you yeah, know, yeah. these endless series of great moments that yeah. just keep you know like a train you know that yeah. are just kind of linked together you know the um, and you're like it's whole, it's whole, Captain America and he's actually doing some really fantastic yeah, oh, Chris, I think Chris Evans <laughs> will yeah. in about 10 or 20 years if he doesn't quit acting entirely be the De Niro of this generation yeah. where it's like oh my god he was really good and we just kind of hmm. and you know maybe it'll turn out that all anyone can do is superhero movies so it doesn't matter anyway and he yeah. gets to play Matter Eater Lad or whatever yeah. but um, but yeah Snowpiercer is terrific Okja is slightly less terrific um, I actually quite enjoy it it has a lot of great stuff in it um, yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal's thing I just find a headache yeah they but, kind of um, play but they, yeah. I mean that's but but the whole um, the whole side the whole Korean side of the film I think is immaculate and perfect mm. and the um, monster running free in the um, underground subway malls mm. and um, and the and I mean Bong's films are always characterized by these wild tone shifts and yeah, they don't yeah. they do not come any wilder than Okja mm. you know and it's just like and so harrowing in its final. Mm. Um, turn where it's almost felt like a Goonies kind of kid adventure points and then it's just like yeah we're just gonna go there and not like cut any um, leave anything to imagination as to how brutal this enterprise ultimately Mm -hmm. is and if the, if the, the decade had ended there he would have been somebody respectable to consider in this discussion but wouldn't have really made it for me and then Parasite and Parasite... Have you seen Parasite? I haven't yet, no. Oh, that's right. Um, holy fucking shit. It is the best film of the year. Wow. It is um, the rare film that manages... I was complaining about um, recently. There's a few films uh, that have come out um, that you won't have seen, but that I feel like... Um, have a tension between their thematic content yeah. and their plot content. Yeah. Like Ad Astra is like, let's make a story about daddy issues and we'll go into outer space. And it's just like, and we'll have space pirates. And it's like, I don't really see how those two together. Or we're going to make a story about male friendship and we're going to set it at Sharon Tate's murder. Mm. You could do that, I guess. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're mm. thinking, but you know, okay. Um, but Parasite has a perfect fit between political content and uh, plot structure. Um, immaculate performances. Like the performances in both Snowpiercer and Akja, I feel like there's moments where they're not quite as yep. finely tuned. And some of that, you know, is, is just there is a kind of tonal intensity in those films. Yeah. 
Um, whereas this is just so finely attuned the whole time. The production design is pared back and we're back in Korea and you get this sense that this whole decade has been this kind of journey of like, okay, I've gone and played in these big toy boxes. Yeah. I've learned a lot. I know what I like. And and I'm cheating a little bit because to Skype, I got to interview Bong Joon-ho, which is going to be one of my life experiences yeah. uh, when I was at Cannes. And um, I asked him about, like, so do you want to keep making movies at this scale? I was like, no, this is the right scale, you know. Yeah. Parasite is much smaller scale than both um, Snowpiercer and Aksha. Yeah. It's like 50, more than 50% of it's on one set. Yeah. Or um, maybe a couple different sets, but one location. Yeah. Um, and it that gives the space to just mm. um, really maximize everything about those character moments. And, and it's, yeah, it's it's stunning and it you need to see it. And I think it's showing on Wednesday and you should skite off work and go see it. Again. <laughs> and actually, I'm not working this week, so I might go see it again as well. Bon. Um, so, yeah. Um, bon. Team nice. Bon. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Okay, so number three for me um, is... Uh, Another, well, probably my only um, non-English language person who's for it in English language, which is Yuris uh, Lanthimos. Yes. Who has just, who leapt onto the scene here anyway with um, Dogtooth. Yes. And um, it played at festival and we were all like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he's just... Second most walkouts of any film I've yeah. seen at festival. And then he's just gone from strength to strength. Um, yeah. So uh, the first one he did this decade was Alps and I caught up with that later because I don't think that made it to festival here. No, it didn't. It, it was for some reason yeah. not um, considered to be as strong, yeah. which I, I'm quite I'm quite fond of Alps. Yeah, and, and, and that was... Um, film where uh, the people had a service where they could um, play um, loved ones who had passed on yeah. um, for people as a kind of grief service, I guess. Um, yeah. And it was quirky but kind of warm and also kind of slightly melancholy. Mm. There's some brutal there scenes. Some brutal scenes but I, I don't know that it's war. Well, but there's, yeah. there's some warm, warmth to it, I think. Um, mm. but, but I quite enjoyed that. Um, yeah. And then, then he comes out with his first... Um, so that was in Greek language still. Yeah. Then he comes out with his first English language feature, The Lobster. And yeah. I, I remember seeing, hearing that that was in the, in the works and I was thinking, oh, this would be interesting to see how he translates to English. Yeah. And then it took a while and I heard more and then it was like, Rachel Weiss, oh yeah, fantastic. Colin Farrell. Colin, Colin Farrell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, but he's so good. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. th- that, that collaboration, twice yeah. now, yeah. is just so on point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that was so good. And the, the way that he translated his style um, and his kind of weird, stilted way of working with actors that's very much him and works yeah. so well for, for the kind of the, the satire and, the, and the, um, the brand of kind of dry humour that he, that he has... Um, translated perfectly in the Lobster. It's I think. So I think in a weird way, Colin Farrell is actually Chris Evans plus ten years. He's he's somebody mm. who's a brilliant character actor yeah. trapped in a handsome lead role's yeah. body, and yeah. like when he has to drill into some kind of like generic kind of character, there's nothing there for him to grab onto. Onto, Yeah. But as soon as he has some, some kind of handhold, yeah, he just you know like. Um, uh, Chris Evans in that monologue in Snowpiercer talking yeah. about how he knows what um, meat tastes like, you yeah. know, humans taste like, yeah. you know, it's just like, well, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and Colin Farrell Colin in, in, in the Lanthimos films yeah. is su- such a shining example of yeah. like, yeah. It was so good. And, and so The Lobster was obviously just 
Killer. And then um, Killing of a Sacred Deer didn't work for everybody, but I actually really enjoyed yeah. it. Um, I, I think the same sort of sense of kind of subversion off kilter. Yeah. Um, really kind of putting, stripping any sense of ease from yeah. you on the story that is playing with um, how we make decisions. <laughs> you mean this film that starts with a minute-long zoom yeah, into an yeah. open-heart surgery? Yeah. Yeah, it's not... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the first thing is, this a deer killing a second? No. Mm. <laughs> um, and then, again, like um, like with Celine's Gamma, period film, and you're thinking, oh, this is interesting. Working yeah. with some of my favourite... My favourite Olivia, Olivia Coleman. Yeah. I've loved her since, um, since uh, she was in uh, uh, Hot Fuzz. Yeah, as a comedy role, but then um, and then Tyrannosaur. Um, yeah, uh, she was the lead role in that, which was um, uh, Patty Considine's directorial yeah, yeah. debut. Um, and uh, and again, Rachel Weisz, um, and then Emma, Emma Stone, Stone, who yeah. was fantastic as well. And she, that yeah. film was, I, I love what he did oh, with the camera there. So like, great, yeah. He, he the purposely using um, like wide angle fisheye lenses in certain scenes, mm. which just kind of throws everything to this weird skew. I'm used to seeing them in skateboard videos all the time, right, so you yeah. kind of get sick of them. Um, but the way that he applied them in this was just fantastic, kind mm. of just skewing your your idea of the space and shape of mm. the rooms that you're in. But there's also a lot of really bold yeah. camera movement yeah. through spaces that's yeah. really and just compelling. Why satirical? <laughs> yeah. It really, um, yeah. like you said before, you like period pieces. I don't like period pieces by and large. Like yeah. it's generally like, um, and I feel like it just stripped that. You know, took a wire brush to all the pomposity of yeah. the genre and really got and, into the grit and grime and that, that would have really been there. Yeah, like power play of um, yeah, figuring out who's who's got like who's going to be the most powerful and what, what way they're going to get there through what scent, what form of manipulation and yeah oh, yeah it's it's, it's so the next well yeah, it's not quite portrait of a lady on fire but it is similar in yeah. that kind of like oh i'm really watching a female power yeah. play and um there was that not so good margot robbie um mary queen of scots oh, yeah. and it was like kind of oh this is sort of a female-led movie but they're both really like kind of beholden to the men yeah and maybe but, that's but, more but even, period even accurate. The, even the but, men in, 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 in uh, the favorite and the favorite were beautifully realized kind of dandies <laughs> yeah. and 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 again yeah. kind of trying to impress their own sense of um, uh, authority and power on on the sort of scene with very limited effect um, and sort of having yeah. the rug pulled out from under them. And yeah, it was just so yeah. beautifully done. And the, and the male performances there were. Pretty fantastic as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just uh, the entire film was great, and and as a run, that was yeah. fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, and working in English language, just like as effortless, as effortlessly as he is in Greek, and yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, Killing of a Sacred Deer is a film I definitely felt like I need to see this again to work out how I feel about it, because mm. um, I really, I I have. Historically, in the past, I used to really yeah. like get faint in the theaters at certain yeah. times, and that's happened a lot less. But yeah. it happened both at the end of the Lobster and at the start yeah. of Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, and and so I kind of like. Well, I mean, Killing uh, of a Sacred Deer lacks some of the some of the humor. 
I think it's quite funny though. Well, it's you know when it's, it's like it's a different legal, you know when they, when when everybody's negotiating with yeah, yeah, dad yeah, as yeah, to yeah, like yeah. why they're important to the family, yeah, yeah. or when um yeah. Nicole Kidman just sort of flops onto the bed, yeah, you know, yeah. and um and the and Alicia and the, Silverstone out of nowhere. Oh, Alicia Silverstone's amazing, <laughs> yeah. and just the banal dialogue about watches and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. I, uh, yeah, and the um. And when Barry Keegan's like setting up the rules yeah, of the yeah, supernatural yeah, conceit that takes yeah. it over, and it's almost like he's reading a hostage statement or something. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, "This is what's going to," you know. It's just like, <laughs> you know, and, he, and you know, you expect the supervillain is going to be pounding the table and yeah. say, you know, um, and it's something completely yeah. different. So, yeah, it, it, with a bit of distance and a bit of review of those films, I could see like mm. that actually being my choice as well. But um, so from from the agree. ridiculous to the sublime. Um, so this is a funny thing about this exercise is that, um, I went and looked in, um, Letterboxd to see which films I'd given five stars to. I mentioned yeah. this before and there are only 14 yeah. and there's only one director I gave two five star films to. Um, and it's also the director who's made several films that I'd probably rate the lowest oh, yeah. of any of the, of the films that are mentioned in here. And that's, um, Terrence Malick and, um, ironically, the film that probably people would think of as being one of those, uh, The Tree of Life, is not one of those five-star films for oh, me. Oh, really? Um, yeah. it's. Um, I haven't seen it for a while, and I want to see the director's cut, but... I still haven't seen it. <laughs> well, so you're giving me shit for seeing, not giving five stars to a film you literally haven't seen. Great. Um, I mean, look, it's basically like there's... Um, this stuff about like Brad Pitt as a dad in Texas, and there's this stuff about Sean Penn being yeah. growing up and being sad, and then there's this stuff about the creation of the universe. Yeah. And everybody who I talked to when I came out of it, and I remember the vividly the first civic screening, yeah, civic, yeah. all of them agreed like it was too long and it needed to lose a bit in some place, but nobody could agree which place it was. Yeah. Like people were like, Oh, that creation stuff was so stupid. And I'm like, and the dinosaur stuff was a bit naff, but mostly that was amazing. But it was just like the hour in Texas, you yeah. know? Um, but it's still one of the most generous, um, uh, ambitious works of the decade. And one that, um, set kind of this, I'm, you know, I mean, obviously he yeah. made a couple other films in the time leading up to that where he was revving up to this decade of productivity where he made more films than he'd made in his entire career from Badlands to date. Yeah. Um, and so the next couple films, um, you know, To the Wonder and Night of Cups, um, both had elements that I really struggled with. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet yeah, there's, there's... Night of Cups I didn't mind. No, yeah, no, I didn't mind Night of yeah. Cups, but um, and I didn't mind Song to Song. But yeah, and you're I, right. Moments. Yeah, and sort of and down. he's struggling with these these elements of voiceover and these elements of how do I bring all this stuff together, mm. and it's and what you're seeing him work through. I feel like in all this stuff is this kind of collecting these moments of beauty and finding a narrative through line to thread them to. Yeah. And so I think To the Wonder and Night of Cups and Song to Song all individually have moments that are amongst the best moments in American cinema in the decade. But as 
a cinematic experience can be frustrating or maddening. In the middle of that, he put out one of his most berated films, which is one of my five-star films, um, Voyage of Time, um, oh. which is a documentary that's exa- actually existed in a couple different formats. Oh. And the four- there was an IMAX version that I think was narrated by Brad Pitt. And then there was a feature version that played at the Civic during the late Lamented World Cinema Showcase oh, yeah, yeah. that was called Voyage of Time, Life's Journey yeah. that was narrated by Kate Blanchett in sort of this mother-godlike voice. It's basically him taking this kind of notion of taking all of these ideas of what mankind is and and really stretching the notion of beauty to its elastic limits. So you have like what looks like pixelated versions of bum fights in it and stuff like oh, yeah. that to like, you know, these nature shots out of Koyanis Kotsi. Incidentally, mm. one of the great moments I forgot to mention from this year's film festival. Oh, yes, yes. Civic yes, screening of that. To um, this stellar imagery... Uh, and all brought together with this um, spiritual voiceover that, to me, really gets at the heart. It's kind of like he's like, look, what I've been trying to do with these films is use characters as conduits to get to these issues I care about. Yeah. What if I just got rid of the characters and plot and just made a film that was what I cared about? Mm. And for me, that was kind of like, what if you didn't adulterate your cocaine with baby powder and yeah. you just smoked crack? <laughs> it was just that kind of like, yeah. you've got everything that's important and none of the bullshit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so I had a religious experience that film, you know, yeah. and I, I, I mean, I certainly sitting in the front of the Civic and having it wash over yeah, me can't yeah. hurt, but it just really hit me on a very deep level. Um, and so fast forward to May 2019, and I'm at Cannes, and yep. um, his new film, which was supposed to be called Radigund and is now called The Hidden Life, premieres. And it's almost the exact opposite in that it's his most straightforward plot since Badlands, and even more so. Yep. Basically, like, there's a guy who's living in Poland, Poland gets invaded by the Germans. Um, people are drafted into the army. Oh, no, sorry, not Poland, Austria. Um, he's um, supposed to swear loyalty oath to Hitler. He, for some crazy reason, doesn't think Hitler's a great guy, refuses to swear the loyalty oath, even though he's served in the army already, um, and gets put through the ringer for it. And this goes on for like about two hours and 40 minutes. Um, and that's the plot, pretty much, you know, there, and there's no. Um, not much else to it other than this exploration of like what does it mean what we do as humans and um, it's kind of like by having found that really skeletal plot Mm. to then um, and, and set up this loving relationship with his wife and these children and finding this room for his the techniques that he's developed because mm. he really took um, like his early films feel more like normal films. Yeah. And as he goes on, it almost feels like this kind of like, I'm just editing a bunch of shit together and voiceovering yeah. Yeah. under it um, and don't really have a plot flow to them. It's just yeah. like, here's stuff. Here's more stuff. Here's or, or Olga Kurianeko like twirling in a thing and Ben Affleck going and looking at a poisoned river and mm. we're at a Sonic and what the fuck's going on. Yeah. Um, 
this doesn't sound like a very positive thing to say about my third favorite filmmaker of the decade, <laughs> but I feel like that, you know, in, in terms of this decade thing, it's this journey to a hidden life, yeah. which is the most profound emotional experience I've had in a cinema this decade. Mm. Um, it, yeah, it just overwhelmed me and I, I will be interested. At, at, well, part of me is like, well, you know, you're a can, it's the, heat of the moment and stuff but you know I saw plenty of films there that I thought were shit house. I saw The Dead Don't Die yeah. and Opening Night as the film and I loved Jim Jarmusch's <clears throat> last film yeah. and all he would have had to do was make Dead Don't Die an okay film for him to be a serious contender yeah. for this list he is not a serious contender for this, this list. list Yeah, it's just oh. um, and there were yeah and there were lots of other films that I thought were like a bit whatever yeah. um, so I don't think it's just that I do Having seen other people's reactions, um, there's something that I got about the generosity of his worldview, and 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 I'm not conventionally religious, but there is something that in what has become an increasingly commercialized, narrowly marketed American filmmaking landscape mm-hmm. that is speaking to these spiritual issues in a way that is antithetical to any desire of the conventional marketplace. I mean, obviously yeah. there are these weird ass Christian films about people getting rescued from a burning house yeah, because yeah. they prayed a lot yeah. or whatever. Um, but those aren't, those are barely movies, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they happen to have been shot and yeah. like they conventionally <laughs> yeah. cut together, but you know, they're just like, yeah. they're filmed entertainment and this is cinema. Yeah. Sorry. Um, that was a long rant, but um, yeah. So I don't know when a hidden life will come out, but I look forward to it. Battery's getting a little low, but we'll, we can keep continuing on, and we'll check that in a little bit. Um, okay, so my number two is um, uh, the uh, female filmmaker to make my list, which is <laughs> uh, <laughs> CM almost made it, um, but uh, one of my favourite living filmmakers, Kelly Rockett. Yeah. Um, so two of her strong films, or one particularly Wendy and Lucy, was previous decade. Um, again, if that had been then, she would have been a sh- you know, sh- possibly a shoo-in for the number one. But this yeah. decade started with um, Mixed Cutoff, which is fantastic. And I'm currently reading yeah. a, a fantasy series by Joe Abercrombie that I really love. Um, and uh, I'm on the third of a kind of a second trilogy. Um, and he plays with genre in those. And one of them is a... Is a um, Does he take eight pages a, to have somebody load a shotgun? Yeah, not quite. <laughs> but, but it's a Western film okay. with a wagon train. Oh, okay. It's a big section of it. Yeah. And so... I like Kelly, Mix Cut Off, by the yeah, way. I should just say Kelly, that. Kelly Rocket, I mean, that's based on uh, the Oregon Trail, I think. Yeah. Um, and so early journeys of people um, trying to make it to a, to a new place, but uh, in a wagon train with uh, with a little bit of guidance, but n- not probably quite as good as they'd hoped for. <laughs> um, and just the way that she brings out her aesthetic of, like with Wendy and Lucy and Old Joy, it's very much a kind of a, a verite relationship-driven um, films and this one yeah. is similar but in a genre that we're used to seeing kind of shoot 'em up stuff and this one like yeah. you say there's a whole 10 minute scene of something bad comes down there's a, is it um, Michelle Williams? yeah Michelle yeah, Williams yeah, yeah. trying to load an old school gun where you have to load the powder and yeah. stoke it up so it's not a, it's like mm. they don't have enough money to yeah. have a proper um, <laughs> like a just an easy pump action or yeah. trigger one they've got to have a powder and drop the. Well, I don't even know when that it. shit was invented. You know, I don't even know. Like, yeah. well, I, th- I think it probably was invented at that time, but I think you had to be yeah. <laughs> uh, of a certain uh, uh, financial means okay. and um, social station to have that stuff. And so here she is, you know, taking ages, and yeah. it's and it's it's tense and it's 
and and it's and it's um dramatic um but yeah um the whole she explores the um relationships of these men who are kind of in charge and the women who are um who are hanging out together and um with Michelle Williams character who wants to who has a slightly more egalitarian relationship with her husband who's who's mm. actually speaking into what's happening with the group um but it's that thing of you've got this traditionally kind of overdramatic lots of gunfights and all that kind of stuff happening but this one the drama is all mined out of everyday stuff you're yeah. in the middle of the desert trying to get to a place you can't find water yeah if you don't have water for more than three days fucked um, yeah and so and so they're, they're like um going what's gonna happen and, and then you know they get they go roll down a hill where a wagon gets out of control yeah. and then suddenly a wheel comes off it and how do you fix that shit in the middle of nowhere you know it's like um so it's, mm. it's very much the this is these are the real kind of concerns that you have when you're living under this kind of state of duress and poverty and, and when you've got no technology when you've got no other means to kind of answer these these problems um, yeah and it was just it was beautifully done shot fantastically in academy ratio um, oh yeah so beautiful um, and there's a couple of like like that fade through um, which has that um, that's that, long dissolved yeah long yeah. dissolved wow man so much, so much good stuff in that film, and then she went on to Night Moves, which was like an eco-terrorism sort of thing with um, Jesse Eisenberg, twi- twitchy yeah. Jesse Eisenberg, and and, and <laughs> that's redundant, yeah, you know. <laughs> Dakota Panning and Peter Sarsgaard, who I yeah. traditionally not like that much, who I started oh, really? actually liking. Oh yeah, there's a couple. Of, he was on a thing called Flight Plan, which I really didn't like. Oh um, okay, but um, yeah, yeah. buddy, um, Shattered Glass. You need yeah. to see Shattered Glass if you haven't. Okay, yep. You're not leaving here without that. that he's okay. great. That was the first film I saw him, oh, yeah. and I was just like, "Oh my god, this guy's yeah. amazing!" Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've subsequently changed my view. But um, he, um, that film, when I first saw it, I thought, like comparing to Kelly Reichert's last two, not mm. quite up to par. Mm. But actually, thinking about it separately and having watched it a couple of times subsequently, it's a really good film. And yeah. It's really interesting, sort of character psychology because it's again, it's sort of a dramatic event. But low kind of drama leading up to it, yeah. um, and then the results of things are mm. the kinds of things that just mess with people's heads and, yeah. and get into people's mind, and they just can't they can't cope with the consequences of their actions. Um, That's one of my fav- favorite yeah. final scenes of the decade. Yeah, actually, that final scene in the um, sporting goods. Yeah, store, yeah, um, is just so powerful. Yeah, and and, and, yeah. and it's the kind of role that Jesse Eisenberg's kind of just. Four and four, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, more recently, um, Certain Women, which yeah. um, a vignette film, um, and which is kind of loosely tied together. Yeah. And actually, I like there was uh, I think the middle sequence, which had uh, Michelle Williams again, um, was mm. often people's. I think it's quite as people's weakest, but actually, I, I think mm. it was a really beautiful picture of. Just slow emotion, uh, slow relational decay, yeah. where people can't find space for themselves and each other, yeah. um, and how that kind of plays out. Um, and so, the whole idea of like talking over each other and not yeah. giving space of uh, slightly at odds um, goals, yeah, and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and, and in some ways, it's a discomforting watch, but it's, yeah. it's um, on a on, like on a small scale, but really beautifully observed. And I, th- I think, mm. yeah, that. That film. I mean, everyone talks about the um, the Kristen Kristen Stewart, Kristen, yeah. Kristen Stewart, and um, her name drops out of my head, but same name, here. But she's amazing. Yeah, 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 the other it, actress, it's yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah. And um, but actually, I think all of those pieces have some really strong parts to them, and and, and uh, sort of with distance, that film rang even stronger for me, and yeah. I remember so much of it. 
there's there's the there's things of it that didn't work for me, and part of it is that the um, I've actually read the book uh, oh, that, the, of short stories yeah. by Mail Malloy that yeah. it's based on, and um, and I yeah that just landed stronger for me than yeah. that did. Lily Gladstone is Lily the Gladstone, yeah, yeah, she yeah. was fantastic, and um, yeah. Yeah. And then we have another Kelly Reichardt film as yeah, well, which, which none I haven't of us seen. Have seen. Yeah. yeah, First Cow, it's getting good reviews. Yeah, played, played New York Film Festival. Festival. So yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't as big a fan of Certain Women, but I like the other two. And Certain Women has its strong points. And, yeah. And she's somebody who, yeah, First Cow could be up there for me as well. Yeah, um, yeah I feel I feel not great about the fact that I don't have a female film director on here, but I it's also kind of like... It's in some way, it's like actually trying to address that by a token pick mm. under, you know, doesn't yeah. tell truth to the yeah. fact that men do have a lot of institutional advantages. Yeah. And a lot of my the filmmakers that I've chosen are actually people who are older and have been working for a long time. You know, mm. I mean, Martin Scorsese and Terrence yeah. Malick um, are reaping the benefits of being a man in the 1970s, yeah. you know, and... Um, that to some extent is true of my number two pick, who's Frederick Weissman. Yeah. Um, Although working it, in a very different kind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, to the extent that Scorsese and Malick are different uh, yeah. from each other, though I do think silence and. Gosh, how um, many things has he got in the last decade? Frederick Weissman? Yeah. Seven. Yeah, so, say, yeah he's, had, he's had a fascinating decade. So yeah. he started. Um, Really small scale with a film called Boxing Gym mm. that I quite liked. I liked it a lot. That I still haven't um, seen. Yeah, and it's 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 a beautiful like. I mean, he's known for making quite long films sometimes. Yeah. Boxing Gym is maybe eighty minutes or something, and it has a lot of lovely rhythmic montages. Yeah. And it's it's a very um, it's probably one that will never rise to the top of his filmography. If yeah. people go back and watch the. 40, 50 films that he's yeah. made. But um, I definitely stand up for. Um, and then he made Crazy Horse, which, you know, mm. is like, hey, I'm living in Paris. This is the strip club I like going to. I'll make a film about this. This is fine. Um, and then he um, did a pivot film, which I haven't seen, called In Jackson Heights. Oh, I think yeah. that's... Which no, no, I've heard that, great that, things that about. Before that. Oh, okay. So maybe I have the period wrong. Yeah. But there's three other... There's three films that I think are like kind of his... I'm going to take on the giant yeah. institutions, Berkeley, National, Gallery, National Gallery, and Ex Libris. Yeah, and those three, I mean, at Berkeley is about the university, and that's a four-hour film. And that um, yeah. is just a stunning so institutional yeah. examination yeah. combined with this um, rising action as student yeah. protest um, builds and builds. Um, National Gallery was even better for me. Yeah. Um, that's a film that I wrote about for Lumiere yeah. because I... Um, I'm somebody who struggles with traditional representational art. It's yeah. like, oh, it's great you did a painting, but now we can take a picture, so who cares? That, <laughs> that you know, roughly yeah. speaking, that's my um, a, a caricature of my feeling about yeah. it. But um, National Gallery was just such a thoughtful, well observed, and the, and the thing about Wiseman is it's all about the observation, but it's also about him observing these moments and then laying yeah. out, out in this mosaic-like structure. Yeah. And and you get this increasing sense um, through his the latter half of the decade um, of him being like, actually, there are these values that we need to fight for and preserve. And Ex Libris, about the, um, the New York the public, public library, library yeah. system, 
is such a cogent argument because, I mean, it's come up a few times um, over the years on Twitter. People will be like, if somebody came up with the idea of libraries today and they didn't already exist, nobody would be like, oh, yeah, let's just give free books to everybody. That sounds great. Yeah. You know, we've hardened so much as a society and yeah. our, our ideas of what's fair and just have not necessarily gone in a direction mm. that um, one, those of us with certain political leanings might hope for. And yet in the face of that, we still have this belief in the public library mm. in you know, so many different societies. Yeah. But in, especially in America, it's one of the last kind of truly egalitarian institutions mm. that can um, and there's so much that goes into running it and there's so many tasks some of which are very distant from the reading of books that we mm. think of as the uh, traditional yeah. library structure um, and then his final film of the decade was Monrovia, Indiana yeah. which a lot of people slated And um, but I think that it's actually um, really refreshing in its willingness yeah. uh, in a time where we're so oppositional and yeah. so blithely dismissive of other points of view yeah. to go into red state Indiana yeah. and enmesh and say, this this is who these people are. Yeah, and yeah without a sense of judgment or... Yeah, just, yeah. And, yeah, and there are moments where I do think... I mean, I don't think it's coincidental yeah. that the last scene of the film is a funeral yeah. and that the funeral um, and the eulogy talks about the woman's um, positive values and how mm. kind she was. Like, I don't yeah. think that's an accident, yeah. um, but I do think, you know, it's also not an accident that these old people who are probably Trump voters, um, that we don't hear them talking about politics, but we hear them talking about their knee surgery and their cancers yeah. and, you know, yeah. like, and a lot of these quotidian problems and yeah. that actually these people are, so much more yeah. than their political beliefs, yeah. um, as we as are we all. I, yeah, for me, Monrovia and Indiana wasn't as strong a piece, but I actually quite enjoyed it, and I thought it was a really nice kind of. Um, I think it uh, it was kind of a not, not a counterpoint, but it was it was a nice companion piece within Jackson Heights. Which yeah, which I, I unfortunately I missed, um, which, is, but, yeah. which was also really good. I preferred it, but but yeah. it, it, um, it shows. Uh, like the polar opposite society where you've got um, like this really diverse yeah. um, middle of large city um, community yeah. and then you know small town you know state rural yeah 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 I think I think Wiseman's project is one of the great filmmaker yeah. projects and I think that in a time where there's you know so many filmmakers yeah. who are it's like who's going to give me the money to make something, you yeah. know, and some of those films can be great, you yeah. know, um, you know, but, but to actually kind of commit to this is what I do and this yeah. is the record I'm going to leave and to have this five decade record of work is just such an incredible yeah. last testament. Yeah. Um, hopefully not last testament, but he's in his eighties, but he's, he seems to be going, you know, he's, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll see. I think he's making another film. So yeah, and who's your number one? My number one, I have uh, Sean Baker. Um, so Big really, call. Yeah, well, relatively small, I guess, um, filmmaker. I've sort of come to a bit more sort of prominence in the independent sort of cinema um, yeah. sphere. And to Letterboxd readers. <laughs> but I was, um, I, yeah, yeah, because it's on Letterboxd. Um, I was, um, I read a little bit about Starlet, which was 
I don't know if it's his first feature, but the first one I saw definitely. I think he had some others before that, that actually, yeah. yeah. Um, and him and his uh, producing partner, um, Chris Burgott, um, had worked on a show, a show called Greg the Bunny, an animated show. Yes, yeah. Um, which I kind that's of, not animated. Oh, no, not animated. No, no, no it's, it's but, a puppet yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But yeah. it's like has real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which I had seen bits and pieces of, and one of my friends, yeah. Greg, was really quite like keen on it because you know, right. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so when I was like, oh, hey, it's those guys, um, and uh, so I had thought I'd seen it online. Um, at some point a long time ago and then um, it looked like it wasn't going to come and then we got up like often we get things straight out of Cannes so it comes really quickly we got this right at the end of the festival run so it was right. like a year late or a year and a half late it's uh, Drew Hemingway who's um, relative down the track from um, Ernest Hemingway oh okay um, I think it was her first feature role actually um, but what really struck me was uh, Starlet was really a, a beautiful investigation of um, intergenerational friendship so Drew Hemingway plays this a uh, young girl who's uh, sort of studying... I think she eventually wants to... I don't know if she wants to be an actress or if she's studying something, but she's um, working in the porn industry. Right. Um, and that's the other thing, is that Sean Baker and Chris Bogot, they explore sort of fringe societies, yeah. um, and but in a really kind of um, non-judgmental, embedded-in kind mm. of way where they where they include people from the industry and they, and they do a very kind of... And I think they're both from around LA, um, and so they, uh, she she's playing living in this house with another um, kind of friend who, although things go a bit awry, um, yeah. who are working in the industry, um, and then uh, she goes to some sort of uh, garage sale or something at an old lady's house, buys a vase, finds a whole stack of money in it, and then is not sure what to do with it, um, but uh, decides that she's going to keep it but then spend it becoming a friend with this lady <laughs> okay. and hang out with her and this lady is kind of like this octogenarian who is quite you know she's quite brusque and not very friendly and then they strike up this really odd friendship and it's really and it becomes this quite beautiful thing where they kind of visit a graveyard together and yeah. become these kind of odd friends and it's just a really beautifully observed relationship with in a quite strange sort of uh, dichotomy of um, social circumstances and and community, small mm. fringe communities. So that was really really nicely done, and quite interestingly shot. And I yeah. thought, oh, it's cool. So when Tangerine came out, and people were like, "It's the iPhone film." Yeah, and I was like, "That's probably the least interesting part about it." I mean, these guys mm. are making really interesting stories, and yeah. when I heard it was you know set in the transgender community around some things. I mean, there's some things about the film which are a little like if you don't like. Lots of screechy yelling and, <laughs> and stuff. You might. How we discuss my feelings about yelling, <laughs> but I see Asgard for Hardy didn't make your uh... no, <laughs> almost. Mm. But um, but this uh, was a, Tangerine was really kind of again a, another kind of beautifully beautiful relationship um, using um, working with transgender um, actors and um, in a community that uh, by me anyway little known yeah um, and allowing those um, actors to help sort of shape the story as well. Yeah. Um, so he's obviously not a transgender filmmaker, but um, I think they were quite collaborative in the way that yeah. they brought the story out. Um, but there's enough structure and comedy and and drama within it all. Um, and then, you know, the, the whole... The way that he uses the iPhone with the cinema kit on it and what have yeah. you is really beautiful and, and, and it has this real sense of immediacy of um, LA on this, you know, it's off the beaten path. 
and some really great stuff in there as well. Um, the, the like a side issue with the, uh, with a uh, uh, Estonian taxi driver whose oh, yeah, family right, yeah. um, who has family issues and he and he you know visits mm. transgender prostitutes as a way of kind of stress relief and uh, you know and, and it's a Christmas film and there's yeah. you know, just so much really kind of fun but also heartbreaking and interesting stuff yeah. going on there and then move from there to the Florida Project which is one of my fave films of. Um, the decade. I, I saw it with you, and I remembered yeah. like afterwards. Um, yeah. I mean, I liked it, but you were just like, "Yeah, that is my." It, it wasn't quite that as my yeah. life, but there yeah. was something about it that. Yeah, the, the, there into... was a, there was a sense of of like the the free raucousness of kids. I mean, there's a scene in the Florida Project where these kids go into an old abandoned sort of housing thing where you've got the oh, it's like these weird kind of pastel coloured houses yeah. that have been abandoned. And then they're mucking around and they end up accidentally set seeing a fire. And oh, yeah. and there's this big kind of drama when the kids are trying to pretend that they didn't do this and then the parents are like, what the thing is going on? But, they, but everyone kind of comes yeah. out to watch the drama of, hey, look, let's go and watch this house burning down because you know, like, we're poor and we haven't got... Yeah, yeah. And, and it's set in that, um, that um, transitory um, uh, hotel industry off the edge of the, um, of the um, Florida, Orlando um, tourist route where yeah. um, all Disneyland, Disney World and stuff is and so you've got these people living in extreme poverty who are having to live in temporary accommodation they have to move out every so often to be able to legally keep, keep paying for week to week accommodation and they're paying for it whatever way they can and it's heartbreaking but there's a layer of kind of fantasy to it that um, that elevates it and, and it's shot primarily from the kids point of view and so you've yeah. got this summer holiday these kids are not really aware of the the bigger adult issues happening around them um and so there's some heartbreaking pieces in there but you're also just like these kids are just enjoying mucking around being little shits yeah um, and doing things that some of like like you intimated some of that stuff resonated from my childhood where i was kind of left to roam free in the 70s like this is yeah yeah more recently but like in in 70s 80s small town New Zealand we were just kind of roaming free both parents had to work and so during holidays you might just be left to your own devices with a couple of friends and I mean I, I ended up accidentally setting a fire in a bush somewhere in Invercargill because oh, I was God. mucking around, mucking around <laughs> with um, fireworks and then just going Aah! and running off yeah thankfully it's Invercargill so no one noticed oh, I, I, I have no idea to this day but, uh, but, but, might but, still but, be burning but, who knows but, but at least it, it wasn't it wasn't like connected to a property with land mm. you know with housing on it so <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so there was, there's a, a, a warmth and uh, and uh, a sense of empathy with fringe communities that um, pervade pervades their yeah. their work. And Sean Baker's storytelling is very much rooted in these communities. He like he embeds in. He finds the stories of the people. Has a lot of people actually living in those communities be part of the film and yeah. act in them, um, and gives opportunities to non-professionals but then it had Willem Dafoe and what I think is a career defining performance it's a great performance the only reason I wouldn't say it's career defining is because it's so different from his yeah yeah like he's yeah maybe not to me but I think it's it's it's, it's like a crowning highlight it is a highlight and it but it is also one something that almost opens a fresh door into like how to see him because he is so gentle and beautiful in that role which is not and it's, it's something we normally associate yeah. with Willem Dafoe. And, and that whole good-heartedness, but mm. that's still complicit in a system which is um, yeah. punishing people for poverty. 
Yeah. Um, and his sense of powerlessness in that does what he can, but he can't do much. Yeah. What I think is really interesting about your choice, I mean, apart from the fact that I don't think that if you pulled a hundred people, anyone else would say Sean Baker, mm. but I feel the same way about my choice and we'll get mm. to that in a minute. But, um, I think there's this question at the end of this decade of what, what is cinema mm. versus what is, you know, anything else. And, and historically, like, and I, there's a quote from Steven Soderbergh that I, I was looking this up recently cause yeah. I was getting really curious as to like, when did we start saying that movies and cinema were something different? Yeah. And Soderbergh talks about movies are just, you know, they're a product, but cinema is an expression of an individual viewpoint. Mm. Um, and that's historically what cinema has been. But Sean Baker's movies really work against that in a mm. way. And it's like, actually, Tangerine is not just my viewpoint. It's I'm trying to gather... Mm. all these viewpoints in and give as much oxygen as I can. And I think that um, what we'll see, one of the things that we'll see in this next decade, um, we're going to see several different ways that sort of the hierarchy of the director vision being the driving force of Mm. a feature film gets broken up. I mean, some people would argue that Beyonce's Lemonade belongs in this discussion of the best yeah, visual art pieces of the decade that was shot by seven different directors. Yeah, Waru was shot by eight. And yeah, Vi and 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 you know these um, TV shows have showrunners that then have different individual directors. directors yeah, yeah. So I I think there is, um, for me philosophically, and this is probably a really boring point, but I've started so I'll finish. <laughs> um, this idea of what does it mean to be a film director? In 2019, does it mean that you're still doggedly taking the world in and spitting it out through your limited worldview or yeah. that you're kind of acting in a way that's more inclusive and more, you know, mm. all these other buzzwords that we have? And I think that's a really big juggling act that we're still trying to figure out, yeah. you know, I mean, there there's people who go and tell stories that are, you know, white males and go tell stories about other communities mm. and get a lot of stick for them. Yeah. And, um, and off in cases deservedly so because yeah. it's cultural appropriation, uh, appropriation yeah. or whatever. And yet, um, arguably, certainly that's would be the case with Tangerine. And, mm. um, and from a classist perspective, you can argue that with the Florida project as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's just an interesting point of, I think yeah. that, you know, he's a sort of director that's going in a very different yeah. place. Which it's also interesting because I follow him on Letterboxd, and half the stuff he watches is like giallo and like weird yeah. exploitation films. And yeah. I like, I'm hoping that his next thing turns out to be like some bloody horror film. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of bloody horror films, um, some and and also speaking about personal expression, because um, my director of the decade has only made three films as well. Um, but Peter Strickland has made three of the most unique individual mm. films of the decade, which is interesting because the first two are very besotten to other films in certain ways. So mm. Barbarian Sound Studio yeah. is a story of Toby Jones mm. yeah. as a Foley artist who on an Italian I mean, film yeah. called The Equestrian yeah. Vortex. And he gradually begins this descent into insanity as he's yeah. working on this. And there's very much... Um, some very obvious touchstones of both the Italian cinema and then yeah. David Lynch and some other things yeah. as we're 
working on this, you can't help but see um, Mulholland Drive's mm. um, part turn happen yeah, yeah. in that. Um, and yet it still feels just so specific in its love in what it chooses to bring together in an individual movie. It's like, yeah. this is a film nobody else would make. Yeah. Um, we've, I think we've, uh, might've alluded before, but Peter Strickland's obsession with sound. Yeah. Um, he wasn't, uh, has done some sound art and has also, I think ran a record label or something. He's done okay. music videos for people like flying saucer attack and, um, is really into just audio at a deep level that yeah. a lot of, filmmakers aren't and his mm. his concern about audio is as deep as his concern about visual content and and so it's just this amazing ride in Barbarian Sound Studios this hypnotic thrum drone yeah, film yeah. that I was lucky enough to see three times in a theater oh, wow. and um, through weird circumstances yeah, yeah. of timing because it was like almost the only three times that ever played in a theater in New Zealand once yeah. was at a movie marathon, oh, once yeah, was a one-off one screening at Academy, and then I went to Wellington, and the Wellington Film Society pointed it down there, <laughs> and so I went and saw it again. Um, and then he went and did the Duke of Burgundy, oh, yeah, which is an all-female cast S and M drama about butterflies and all this other stuff, and is somehow one of the most emotionally incisive films about relationships that I've ever seen. And he manages to take this very weird specific content um, that, you know, in certain ways is arguably fetishistic, but then blend it to, like, these literal lectures about butterflies and things yeah. like this. And, um, and again, this also pulls a lot from Jess Franco films. There's mm. a bit at the end that's almost a direct lift from Stan Breckage's Mothlight. Oh, yeah. And so it is... But who the hell brings, like this obscure abstract experimental filmmaker yeah. and this Italian exploitation Fiction. filmmaker yeah. into this world and then like kind of casts it with this British folk music by cat's eyes and then makes a film that has superficially like kind of arguably repellent content, yeah. but really just digs deep into the emotional core of what's going on in that because yeah. in any relationship, regardless of what's, being asked of you from whether it's, um, you know, that you don't hold my hand enough in public to the far more extremes that it goes to in this film that <laughs> yeah. I don't really feel like talking about yeah. here. Um, there is always some other yeah. psychological drama playing underneath. And, yeah. and that, that was just what has been so gripping and fascinating. Again, along with the audio world, yeah. when I had a, um, I had a medical incident last year and I couldn't, um, watch things with my eyes for a little while. I had a vision problem. And so I had to, um, and I didn't know how long it was going to last. In the end, it turned out it didn't really last very long. But I got obsessed with this idea of like, I'm going to use this to listen to all my favorite yeah. movies. And it was interesting what came out, you know, and because I, I thought like... How I, many did you do? Uh, just a few. Yeah. Um, I put on Django Unchained thinking yeah. that it would feel like a radio play. And it's yeah. like... Actually, no, there's a lot of dead space in this. It's a surprise. Yeah. And um, a lot of it was, you know, and a lot of directors do lean on the pictures. Yeah. And the audio is really secondary. Yeah. Um, but um, 
you know, with a film like Duke of Burgundy, the audio track is just so alive and he's yeah. so attentive to just the tiny squeaks of mm. leather or movement in a bed or fabric movie or, you know, um, mm. water and butterfly wings, all these things that mm-hmm. you, if you know the film at all, it just, it comes alive and things that you didn't even notice when you were watching it kind mm. of um, yeah, that come out of that. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I, at, at a point where I was worried this might go on for a really long time, I'm like, maybe I'll do screen, Lights Out screenings at the Academy where everyone's like given a blindfold and, and we watch a film that's famous and we're encouraged to watch it with that or do or screen it twice in a row or something so people can watch it yeah, yeah. once and then wa- listen to it once. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I, if I did film school, maybe I'd do that anyway because I think that's a great way to, mm. you know, take a David Lynch film or something like that and do yeah. that. Um, and then and, in, fabric, in Fabric, which yeah. I alluded to before, and is um, in some ways it's my... Uh, I, I've only seen it once and I've seen the other film several times, mm. so I, I'll be interested to see how it fits in in a couple of things. Yeah. What's really interesting about it for me is it's his angriest film, it's his most political film, okay. it's also his funniest film. It's so funny. Um, And it's his first film that, apart from a few stray things, doesn't feel completely embedded in um, the language of other films. Oh, yeah. It feels like um, its own thing and that it's, it's, it's a bit much more... Do you know anything about In Fabric? No. You, you missed it at the festival. Yeah, I missed it. So it, I didn't really kind of... Yeah, it's... Like, I read the blurb, but I didn't Yeah, really so it's, it's, it's ostensibly... Um, it, and kind of as a ghost story about a haunted dress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell? And um, it's, you know... And, and so there's this... So, like, deer skin no, just... uh, There are... <laughs> yes and no. no, no, no. Mostly no. Just, um, <laughs> it's, you know, set at this strange department store... And um, there's these great um, the the level of writing reaches new heights because in the two previous films they felt like these really hermetic worlds mm. and um, and there's this department store where there's this woman who is kind of like some symbolic of you know is, is some witch or something and she's mm. selling this yeah. dress or whatever and she speaks in this baroque sentence structure about realizing one's consumerist desires and and marion jean baptiste is this working class bank teller who goes in there i was like i ain't bothered with that and stuff and just and and um and yeah so there's obviously a lot of specific stuff about um british culture yeah and you know he said there's stuff about brexit that you can kind of read into it and about consumer culture and things like that but also with the weird specificity of his work, there's a whole subplot about um, washing machine repair and these long monologues yeah. about it. Um, and yeah, I just want somebody to just say, dude, you can just make, here's all the money you need, just make as many of these as you want. And they're all going to be different and they're yeah. all going to be that. And, you know, and he may wind up that he's kind of exhausted himself and doesn't have anything any new places to go. But at the moment he's made three really different films that are all only bound together by being so unique and so uniquely him and so immaculately constructed and realized and yet um, completely off their fucking rocker. And Mm. that's what I go to the movies for. Yeah. Cool. 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 
So on that note, um, before we completely run out of battery, let's uh, call it an evening, I yeah. guess. Um, and hopefully we'll do this uh, sooner than another six months. Yeah, yeah. got some time <laughs> off. Um, maybe we can go see Once Upon a Hot Time in Hollywood and Parasite and have yeah, some yeah. chats about some uh, movies in more detail. Cool. But until then, this is Doug. This is Jacob. And that was Best Worst Podcast. Oh. Nice.